You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Meet the student body of Central High. Bruce, Mark, and Teresa. Craig, Paul, and David. They get away with murder. We'll get used to it. Just in time for a massacre. Massacre at Central High, rated R. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also with us this week is Mr. Doug Tilly. Hello, everybody. This week we are discussing Massacre at Central High from 1976. It's the story of David, a new kid at school, who falls in with his old friend Mark, where he ends up finding that the so-called cool kids are running the school with an iron fist. Mark is seemingly the level-headed one amongst the quartet of bullies who intimidate everyone else. When David doesn't go along with the program, things get a little rough. As one character says, the scene around here is a real bummer. Now, we're going to be getting into some spoilers on this episode. If you haven't seen Massacre at Central High, I would encourage you to do so. And just don't watch the version that is uploaded onto YouTube. Uh, it will kind of break your brain. But I will definitely talk about that a little bit more later. Heather, when was the first time you saw Massacre at Central High, and what did you think? The first time I saw Massacre at Central High was quite a few years ago. I had managed to uh, land a bootleg of it, because, and I know we'll go into this later on, uh, it's not the easiest film in the world to get a good copy of, but I managed to get a bootleg of it because I'd heard about it you know, years prior to it and was always really curious, and I was absolutely floored. It is probably one of the most intelligent and probably eerily spot on films about, I think, the teenage experience and just how, you know, with kids, especially if there's not a lot of guidance or anybody looking out, yeah, especially for teenagers and for kids who are getting bullied, it's going to turn into Lord of the Flies pretty quickly. Renee Dalder tapped into that just so exquisitely with this film and, and definitely left no easy answers uh, for anybody, which of course means I loved it. Anytime a film makes people <laughs> uncomfortable, they're like, oh God, I don't know how to feel. That tends to be a favorite of mine. <laughs> how about you, Doug? Well, this is a movie that I've always been aware of, uh, and it's one that I watched – I must have been a good decade ago. Uh, but, you know, I think something about that title when I first saw the movie Massacre at Central High, it prepared me for something so different than what actually the movie is. Um, and, and Heather's absolutely right. It's, it's a brilliant movie. And it has so much going on, and, uh, and it compares so well to the movies of that period. But what I found most striking about it on this most recent watch was just how kind of pertinent and modern it feels – even though, you know, it has so many of those mid-70s trappings to it. But yeah, no, my first viewing of it, I actually was a little disappointed because I was expecting something a little bit more directly exploitative and and gory and something that, that really kind of lives up to that title. Boy, on revisiting it, I, I will, had, had a much different experience. I remember getting a copy of this from the UK years ago and um, selling it via Super Happy Fun. And what I remember about it the most was the cover of it. And just the cover, I always thought that it was Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> with an axe. 
Because it doesn't look like Daryl Morey to me, really. I mean, I can kind of squint and see it, but really it looks like Jethro to me. And just with the crazy look on his face and the axe that he's got over his head, I was expecting some sort of like hillbilly nightmare type of thing. So I really didn't know going into this between the title and the cover photo i was just like what the hell am i about to watch so yeah my initial viewing i was kind of disappointed i was like oh okay yeah well this happens this happens and it really took a long time for it to sink in and be like yeah okay there's some really good stuff happening in this film and especially to think that this is 1976 and uh i mean we talked about rock and roll high school a few months ago or a year ago on the podcast and it's like yeah i guess there's there's kind of some similarities there with uh let's blow up the high school (laughs) kind of a way to it spoilers of course but it's just like okay yeah i guess that was kind of in the air we were about to that point i think those two films and then adding like over the edge to this mix it's just like teenagers were a little um a, a little rebellious at this point they were a little uh, disenfranchised and uh, really needed to be taken a little bit more seriously than they were and I, I don't think that the uh the kid power movement of the 80s and 90s necessarily helped out with anything but it uh it's it's very eerie to think of this whole idea of these bullies and then this whole idea of the power vacuum but yeah it, it was a really really remarkable film Absolutely. And that cover, I think it should be noted, that cover is an absolute monstrosity. I, <laughs> it looks like, you say Jethro, I was thinking the actress Sandy Martin who plays Max Mom on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like his mom after she had a sex change. That I don't know. There is no way in hell they base that on Daryl Morey. It looks, it's just that cover. It's God, it's so Kitten County. It's terrible. It's... I don't know. It's it's almost as bad as the uh, the inserts that we'll be discussing here in a minute. There's a little teaser. It's amazing to think that someone was trying to market this, you know, and market it to a horror crowd, to an exploitation crowd, and they had to watch this movie. And again, there's there's certainly elements that that are reminiscent of a lot of mid seventies exploitation style movies. But because of the style of movie this is, it really is hard to come up with like what would be the cover image. That would sell someone on it. You can see someone just being totally flabbergasted with it. It's like, I just put someone with an axe. That's that's enough. That's good enough. Yeah, I mean, I've seen other covers where it's like a hand holding a knife and a hand holding dynamite with a, a quote of the trick was to stay alive. Uh, that really isn't this movie either, guys. Uh, and then even like the knife coming through the yearbook photos that I've seen other posters. It's like, yeah, you can come on. I mean, a lot of people have, have thought that this was a slasher film and it's so far from a slasher film. But between the, the those knives being shown so prominently or an axe being prominently shown on the covers and the the title massacre at central high you're expecting you know prom night or something and it just is so not that i love that tagline though you better get those kids the hell out of there hey it works you know even in the context of whatever they were trying to sell it yeah you got to get those kids the hell out of there I think the marketing, how that film is marketing, is probably one of several elements that have probably hurt it, you know, in the long run, too, is that, you know, if, if it had been just an average garden variety slasher, it'd probably already have be on Blu-ray, I'm sure, <laughs> and have, like, a nice nice release and be a lot better known than it is. A film that's been poorly marketed, as well as that horrible intro theme song 
that it's it's like Gordon Lightfoot's ass baby. It's terrible, <laughs> and, you know. Like, and I know that um, I know I've read an interview with Renee Dalder where that song was put in the film against his wishes. He didn't want it in the film, and anybody who hears it, it, the film, it's it's terrible. I don't, the song has no place in the film. The rest of the film is perfect, other than that intro song. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we probably have all read a little bit up on it at this point. I mean, was it just that song? I guess the suggestion is maybe the music in the movie on the whole was something that he had an issue with. And I could see that, you know, look, there are issues in this movie. I I don't think that we should pretend that necessarily it is perfect, but it is certainly incredibly interesting. And maybe I'm alone on my opinion of that. But, you know, there's some shaky acting in it. There's probably some pacing issues at, at the midpoint, though. When things go to hell, I am right there with it. But I think the music might be one of the things that really really tonally feels really off in this movie. It, it almost creates this sort of cognitive dis- dissonance where it, it, it almost improves it to some, in, in some ways because it makes it feel like it's coming from a different movie. And then when things start to get violent and crazy and uh, and murder starts happening, it, the fact that the music is still sort of this uh, mid-70s TV movie-ish type uh, style with the kind of jazzy saxophones and things, that it, that it feels like it's coming from a different movie. Yeah, it it does have that feel of just like somebody cribbed it. That's perfect because it does have like this TV, like 70s movie of the week, you know, feel like Karen Valentine should be in this film or something <laughs> when you hear that music. And yeah, it doesn't. That is an element that doesn't work. I kind of, I would have loved to kind of know what soundtrack Dalder would have picked if left his own devices because his, his later movies, especially Population One, incorporate music to such a brilliant uh, degree. And I guess Dalder wrote music for this movie and he wanted to use his own music for it. And I mean, that, that's the kind of like restoration project that I'd really love to see come together. This movie with its original soundtrack uh, and certainly um, certainly the version that we all saw had some extra scenes that probably didn't need to be included. <laughs> but certainly, you know, just to just to see what that music was supposed to be originally. Yeah. And that music does not help because the the opening credits no matter what music you're putting in there are just a little kind of off to me as far as like starting off with it. It's the opposite of the Ed Wood syndrome. You start off with a big explosion and this whole weird thing of kind of cross cutting with David jogging. And then all of these horrible moments that are going to happen in the rest of the film, you know, it's, it's kind of like that sunny boy opening where you're just like, well, here's this kind of, you know, folksy song that's happening. And then here are all these horrible things that are kind of being intercut in here. And it's just like, well, are we starting at the beginning of the movie? Are we starting at the end of the movie? Are these flashbacks? Are they flash forwards? I'm not necessarily sure what's going on in here. And then I'm like creating little stories for some of these moments. Like there's, I, I, I guess it's the moment when David gets injured. I'm just like, oh, wow, that that looks really terrible. What happened? Did they, did they castrate this guy? And I'm thinking of all these things that are end up actually being more terrible than what ends up <laughs> happening in the film. But I'm like, okay, yeah, this, this is a, a strange moment for me. And yet this guy's just kind of jogging through this whole thing. And uh, it's like, what's this guy's story and, and what's going on? And I'm glad that it doesn't take very long at all for us to kind of get into the action of David being the new guy at school and getting the lay of the land really quickly. There is one really, really striking image in that opening credits, at least for me it was, where uh, it's like two people, you can't really see them, they're just kind of outlines fighting in a tunnel. At least part of those scenes are supposed to 
maybe suggest uh, David's relationship uh, before the movie started and, and maybe the kind of, of action he was getting into then because obviously that part doesn't play into the rest of the movie. But I thought it was actually visually really interesting. You know, this is a movie that doesn't have a lot of necessarily uh, complex visuals in the rest of it, even though there's a lot of, of kind of memorable material. So that one really kind of struck out for me. Yeah, what is the relationship? Because we quickly find out that David has one connection in this school, and that is Mark, who's played by Andrew Stevens. What is the relationship between David and Mark? What do you guys kind of figure happened between these guys where Mark, he's kind of a, a he's kind of a pompous prick, but he's like the nicest of the four bullies. He really is it kind of looks out for David and and it's basically like David saved his ass at some point is what I'm thinking. I think they spell it out slightly in the movie where he just mentioned that in the other school that they were both in that Mark, he was one of the victims or one of the creeps or, you know, one of the people who was picked on relentlessly. And David, who had no other previous relationship with him, just, you know, on his own volition, just jumped in and protected him, uh, which, you know, really kind of defines David's character uh, right from the start. But in terms of like the details of that, yeah, I don't think, uh, maybe, you know, maybe picked on a gym class or maybe he was just kind of generally just like, you know, the characters of like Rodney or Spooner or Oscar or whoever. He was just one of those that kind of level of student who just was victimized. So this cycle has already started. The cycle has taken place before in this other school, we can think. And I think yeah. that really explains why Mark is like how he is, right? Because he's so terrified of being finding himself in that position again that he's really aligned himself with people that he knows are assholes and fascistic and just awful people. The important cool intimation with all of that is basically Mark Mark has gone from being a victim to being part of the problem. Like he he is sold out, you know, in a way like sort of any uh, personal integrity because, you know, which which I'm not and I don't say it's a judgment statement. I mean, when you're a kid in school, you know, and you've been bullied, you know, it's it's a natural, I think, reaction to be like either you don't want to be seen or, hey, if you have to ally yourself with somebody, say you stop getting your ass kicked then maybe you'll do it. But I think it also shows that David is an interesting character because he's not only morally more solvent, he's intelligent, but he also takes the high road at, you know, no matter what the cost, if it doesn't make him popular, it doesn't bother him. I also think that Mark works as an example of what, at least in the situation that we see in this movie, the nerds, the people who are getting picked on the, the, the car guy or, or Spoon or whoever, that they're only a couple of steps away from being a bully, right? I mean, that is something that's kind of made explicit in the movie itself. But I mean, I think that's really the most interesting thing about this movie. And again, I don't want to get into too many of the spoilers yet, I guess. But the idea that uh, along with there being this kind of two levels, uh, bully and bullied, but the bully, the bullied characters are also jealous. They have envy of the people, not just because they're in a position of power, but also because they wish to have that power. And I think that's something that they, the movie explores that I never was expecting when I went into it. And I think really, uh, I can't wait to talk about that part of it because it, I feel like it really brings this movie to another level. Well, what do you guys think about that kind of opening scene where we're in the school and we have Spooner, who's played by Robert Carradine, putting the swastika on a locker? I mean, I've seen him described in different reviews as a semi-skinhead, which I just don't pick up on him as being any sort of like a white power kid. It just feels like the swastika is something that is going to piss people off. 
that seems such a, a weird mischaracterization. I read that same thing as you, Mike. But, I mean, he's obviously trying to – you know, they even refer to the gang as the Gestapo a little bit later. He's obviously trying to mark them as being Nazi-like. So, yeah, I, I mean, he seems more like almost like a hippie-ish. He's a rebellious in a kind of a very light, recognizable way to a high school student. But uh, But that seems to be exactly what they're trying to present there. Yeah, I'm mystified that anybody would think that Spoonie's a Nazi character that I've I've actually never read that before. I'm I'm a little I'm a little floored by that on a lot of levels. I mean, especially because I think in the 70s it wasn't that unusual. It's a less politically correct time. I mean, a lot of people use the swastika either as a sign of being like, yeah, look at this little league Gestapo, which I think is how the group is called at one point. But uh, but also on top of that, I mean, like with the whole punk movement, I mean, you'd have people like Sid Vicious wearing a swastika, and it didn't have anything to do with the Nazis. It was just like, here's a symbol that's going to scare people yeah i've even seen people say that he's kind of like proto-punk and i'm like yeah i don't really see a lot of punk saying bummer too often but he seems more like a holdover hippie more than a a proto-punk to me he's your classics picked on stoner kid that is spoony he's the stoner kid who gets bullied because uh he's a you know he's not quite hip because he's a little bit of a holdover from the 60s well and also that his two girls that he hangs out with are mary and jane it's like oh okay yeah I like how how David. Sorry, it, it, he he kind of initially connects with Spoonie because of that that kind of sense of rebellion that you can see that there's an affection there, uh, and it, it's really interesting where they go with that as well. That you know, a lot of the 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 people who are getting picked on, they they really don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to. They want to kind of fade into the background because otherwise they're making themselves targets. Spoonie intentionally has gone out there. And and done something rebellious, and I think David recognizes that as he enters the school, but later becomes even more disillusioned when he finds out how kind of empty that rebellion is. When David is trying to kind of bond with him a little bit more during the pool scene, and Spoonie's just like, "Hey, man, leave me alone, man. Leave, you know, get out of here. I don't want to be associated with you." It's like, "Oh, okay, yeah, you're you're pretty empty in your your threats there, Spoonie." <laughs> well, and I think you know. Because even a lot of the picked on kids at first, I mean, the only person that really engages with David in a, in a pleasant, you know, forthright way other than Mark is Mark's girlfriend, Teresa. Because, you know, initially, you know, when he when David tries to ask Spoonie, which giving him the perfect out, you know, from about to get pummeled or whatever, by the lockers, ask him to show him directions to his class. You know, Spoonie just basically tells him to get lost and mind mind his own business. One of the things I like about this film is that there's this real kind of um, symmetry going on between the idea of the four bullies and then the four uh, – they, they call them creeps in, in here, these these four creepy kids. So Spoonie, you mentioned Rodney, there's Oscar, and there's Arthur. And I love this whole idea of having each one of those having a counterpart kind of with the cool kids, with Mark, Bruce, Craig, and, and Paul, though really at the end of the day, Mark is kind of – of, he, he's almost like Switzerland at the end of the day because he he goes along with the bullies, but you never really see him being as much of a dick as they are because these three other guys, they are complete assholes throughout this entire film. And it just, uh, you know, you're, you're waiting and you're rooting for somebody to give them their comeuppance. I mean, because they just, they're, they're relentless when it comes to all this stuff. And they're, they're, a-holes for no good reason you know just like kicking kids out of the pool just because they want to have like swim practice time and you know the whole idea of like we're going to park our cars on this side of the lot while you guys 
park your junkers on the other side because we don't want anybody messing with our cars and stuff. And, you know, that sweet custom van. That was probably my least favorite part of this film was seeing that custom van destroyed. I mean, because that, that thing was awesome. That was great. I like how even within these groups, there seems to be like a leader, right? Because Bruce in The Cool Kids, Bruce is obviously the person who's kind of running the show. And you start to think, well, you know, you remove some of these elements, they're going to lose their power. And there is there is uh, an idea of that once they start getting kind of picked off one by one. If you went into it thinking that that once you get rid of this bully element that things are going to be fine, well, you, you learn that it's a very different story. We get to see the bullies picking out all of these kids. You know, we see uh, Spoonie kind of getting tossed against the lockers. We see this fat kid, quote unquote, Oscar, who's kind of like being chased up this rope in gym class. And they have a knife down below, like they're going to stab him if he doesn't climb up this rope higher. And then I like how Mark kind of justifies it to say, look, he climbed two feet higher today than he did yesterday. Like we're trying to help this kid out. Yeah, Mark is Mark is terrible. It almost reminds me of like if, if everybody's seen like Von Trier's Zentropa is like there's this whole thing about like even if you're not a Nazi, if you don't choose a side, mm. you're really just as bad in some ways. And I mean there's there could be arguments, I don't want to get into that film, but with Mark, I think it's like, well, on one hand, yeah, he's not actively participating in the assholery, but he but he lets it happen and he doesn't say anything. I mean, right up to like you know, Teresa's friends, you know, Mary and Jane, he knows that they're, the guys are about to go try and rape them. And Teresa shows up and he just makes some bitchy comment to her about like, oh, why don't you grow up and have fun with your friends or something like to that effect. And it's like, you know, rape's about to go down and you're flipping about it. Like he's, he's no better. In, in some ways, he's perhaps maybe worse than the bullies because of his passive aggressiveness about it. The instances that I've given as far as Spoonie and Oscar and then eventually like Arthur, they take some books off the shelves and screw up the shelves of the library. I mean, Rodney, it gets a little worse because they basically destroy his car. And, you know, that's the only way that the kid can get back and forth to school. But, yeah, it's the rape scene where I'm just like, holy shit, we have just moved on to a whole other level here. You know, this whole thing, there's this kind of undercurrent of these bullies looking at Mary and Jane and being like, oh, those fucking lesbians, you know, we should teach them a lesson and we should rape them and stuff. And then when they actually fucking do it, I was like, oh man, this movie has just gone completely way out there. I did not think that this was going to happen. No, it's it's pretty ugly. And, and you know, it's one of the things I think that makes this film, I mean, in some, some ways very tragically still very relevant because you look at something like Steubenville mm. where, you know, your girl got gang raped and, you know, people attacked her. They, you know, it's like her, her attackers, you know, oh, no, these are popular. These are good boys. These are popular boys, you know, and it's her fault. And I mean, that's what you have here. It's like these two girls are two little, you know, cute stoner chicks. They were probably asking for it because, you know, the bullies are the popular guys. These guys have probably been enabled their whole lives to be like, you know, you've got to be number one. Assert yourself. Assert your dominance kind of thing. And that's the ugly side of that. I think it's probably one of the most important scenes in the movie, and it's hard to say that about a rape scene, but you know, it, it's really important to show just how far these guys have taken over the school and how completely outside the law or you know whatever law-like structure exists there that that they really can get away with absolutely anything. And it's I think it's important for the movie to really demonstrate how far they've already gone and how how little they think of it. 
This is also where we get our first insert. If we are watching the version, this film was recut for an Italian release where they released it as uh, Sexy Jeans was the name of it, which I just absolutely love that title. And so somebody has taken the Sexy Jeans version and kind of cut it together with the Massacre at Central High, or in this case, Massacre at Class 13, the uh, German version of the film, which was kind of interesting. And so we have... What could be considered a complete version of the film, but these inserts from Sexy Jeans are just absolutely terrible. There's no attempt to, well, to match anything at all. I mean, it's like this whole idea of the music. Well, the music suddenly changes. I imagine if we watch all of Sex of Sexy Jeans, that the music would have been the same throughout. But the actors change, and all of a sudden we see. I, I think it's uh, Jane who, who suddenly either has a huge merkin going on or just an amazing 70s bush happening or at least this actress who is portraying this woman and then she's got a I imagine a blonde wig on which doesn't the rug doesn't match the curtains in this at all so it was kind of weird and just like yeah we're not going to show their faces we're going to have these inserts of these kind of pornographic scenes and especially in this case this is not sexy stuff uh, you know whether they're wearing jeans or not it's not sexy jeans and it was just terrible to see this kind of pornographic stuff inserted into this rape scene it's really disturbing. I mean, again, of course it's disturbing, but it also – even more than that, it sort of undermines the scene it, to some extent, right? I mean the whole kind of idea is that this rape scene is occurring. David interjects because you know he is our moral center to some extent as the viewers and he stops it from kind of continuing, from really reaching completion. And the, the, by, by inserting these sequences, then he you – know, he's too late. He doesn't – he isn't able to stop these things from happening. So it, it kind of really – not. I don't think they cared how much they were undermining the movie when they were inserting those scenes. I mean when you're, you're kind of undermining it to a greater extent by just calling it sexy genes. But it, it really is kind of weird how it, how it changes up the tone. And I'll tell you, I don't know how in the original version they got out of those pornographic scenes and back into the movie. But the way in the version that we watched is so awkward because suddenly everyone's wearing their clothes again and you know, then they run off. It's so weird. First of all, I feel like those inserts were an act of complete hate. Like, those mm. inserts are terrible. They're butt cut in. That music sounds like something from, like, a grotty south of the border by way of Florence, Italy, stag loop. I mean, it's it's awful. Like, those are – that is some of the worst porn inserts I have ever seen. And I've seen some – I've seen some things, but it was terrible. And on top of that, like – I'd have to revisit the regular cut of it, but the the rape, I mean, if I'm remembering this correctly, the rape scene in the original cut of the film, it's attempted. I don't think the guys ever fully come in because yeah, David exactly. comes in and tears it and, you know, breaks it up before it could get even worse. So, you know, that, that you know, that insert not only robs the scene of its, of its power for a lot of reasons, but especially because it kind of screws up a little bit of the plot. Is it bad that I actually liked the music in the porno version more than the music that was in the regular version? Yes, they're both awful. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. Both- I guess it was just because I was so tired of the regular awfulness that new awfulness kind of sounded a little better to me. Oh, Lord, no. no, no. It's, it's Starlight Vocal Band is just as bad <laughs> as Debbie Boone. It's all bad. It's, it's okay. But I understand. I do understand. 
And then Teresa's role during this rape is absolutely bizarre, too, how she just kind of comes in and I guess maybe she's thinking that her presence is going to make it so that the guys can't have sex or something because she just kind of comes in as like, okay, you guys go ahead. I'm just going to sit here. And I'm like, this is kind of strange. I mean, I think it's it's a kind of a strange protest. You're right, Mike. But it's also in a situation where you don't have any power and all you can do is trying to kind of passively try to stop this from happening. I guess she felt like it was the only thing she could do. But Teresa as a character, I think, is really interesting in this movie because even though she's kind of portrayed more sympathetically than Mark is, uh, even though they're they're together in the movie, because of the kind of closeness that she develops with David, there is an element of the kind of negative parts of Mark's character in her as well. There's a suggestion that she's really only with Mark. Because of the protective element of being with those cool kids. Uh, I mean, in this case, I think at least it shows that she's willing to go that extra mile to try to stop these awful things from happening, even if it is in kind of the most passive way possible. It's like she's having a sit-in. Yeah. right. Well, she she even says something along the lines of, oh, you can't get it up because I'm sitting here. And I guess that's kind of her plan. Yeah. And then she eventually gets kicked out of the room. And that's when uh, David puts on his ruse to uh, say, oh, hey, it's Mark. And then they let him in and he just kicks all their asses, which I was just like, finally, these guys finally get their comeuppance, which just then, of course, makes David a completely marked man. And that's when they decide that they need to take it a little bit further. But before that, we have uh, David and um, Teresa going to the beach, you know, having a nice, very soulful moment. And then at one point, uh, Mark comes in and he sees them frolicking naked in the waves. And Mark jumps to the same conclusion that I would have jumped to, which was that David and Teresa were going to be getting it on, uh, or maybe they had shortly beforehand. But no, Teresa lets him know after Mark is complicit in the act that is going to cripple, basically, David, that no, no, she respects him too much. So they did not, they both wanted to make love, but neither one of them did, just out of friendship for Mark. I like how she doesn't just say that, but even says, I was going to do it and I wanted to do it, but David said no. Sorry, it does it does give Mark some impetus to be a little upset about it. No, I, I totally thought that they were going to be bumping uglies before the night was over. And we do get a, a sex scene on the beach later on, another great insert shot. But that is, is it, we'll talk about that in a moment. But yeah, no, it, at this point, he's trying to, Mark is going to go down and talk with David, sees this stuff going on, comes back to the uh, awesome custom van that his, his boys have. And he's just like, yeah, no, he said he's not going to listen to me. So then they're like, okay, well, if he's not going to listen, we'll go find him fixing Rodney's car the next day, drop it on his leg and crush it. And it'll take him a long time before he comes back to school. That's important to note here that that what we've been set up at this point, uh, and even in with, between David and Teresa's conversations, is that jogging is David's outlet. So when he has a lot of frustration or anger or violent feelings, he gets that out through his jogging. Uh, so when they crush his leg, that's really fucking unfortunate for them. <laughs> <laughs> because now his only outlet is murdering people. 
we're about halfway through the film. I was checking the time code on this. I think we were like 38 minutes in and there were still about 48 minutes to go. And I was just like, okay, this is interesting that it's taking place at this particular time in the film because, you know, this normally we're about what a little bit after the end of the first act. I imagine that the end of the first act is really them crushing his leg. And I was just like, oh, this is surprising because it's very shortly after we're into the second act that he decides that he's going to have his revenge and he starts picking these guys off in very appropriate ways. I love that there's poetic justice to every single one of these guys' deaths, which I really appreciate. You know, we we go into the second act and a lot of this, uh, the massacre, uh, starts to occur. But then it leaves something for the third act that, again, was completely unexpected. And what that means is that the second act is really pull, uh, is, is really kind of packed with David uh, setting up these situations. And then we just kind of watch them play out. Uh, and they're very creative. It, it almost makes you feel complicit when you're watching it because you're like, yeah, I want to see these guys pay. And then they pay in really kind of violent, unpleasant ways. Well, what other movie has Death by Hang Glider? That effect – when the hang glider lands on the electric wires and then the body is sort of like twitching on it, that is weirdly disturbing to watch. I mean, these are deaths that are right up there with uh, The Girl Most Likely To, the Stocker Channing film. I mean, these are very creative deaths. You know, this is this is a great revenge film for people who want some good ideas of how to have revenge. Please, nobody do that. <laughs> this, is, this is a PSA from the projection booth. Please do not imitate anything from Massacre at Central High, especially that opening theme song. That is really the worst crime. What would have been worse, Columbine or those kids doing a cover of Crossroads of Your Life? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, I'm not saying anything. But no, I think I think that's kind of like, that is such a cool twist with this movie because I've, um, I've shown it to other people without really telling them. Like, what to expect, just being like, here's the movie. And, like, once David starts killing people, they're kind of like, what? <laughs> like, what? you know, it's like, it's so nasty. And yet, the cool thing with David as a character, and I give, I mean, I think a lot of this credit also has to go to Daryl Morey's performance, which is so, which is so great and, and so understated in ways is that, you know, he's not going around like some maniac or, you know, laughing or, you know, like losing his shit. Like, everything is very calm. Like, he is very much still the captain of his ship. It just so happens that the ship is killing people. <laughs> but, you know, he never he never loses it. And you still like him. I mean, even though, like, and I think part of it's because, yeah, I mean, the bullies are complete. I mean, there's a part of you that's like, you know what? The world's not going to be any worse if these guys are not on the planet. Like, they're terrible people. And they're probably not going to grow out of being assholes. They're just going to keep being assholes till they die i like also that oh sorry that he doesn't get any joy out of it right it doesn't show him smiling at the fact that his plans are playing out exactly as he wanted it seems like you know just like we learned that in the past it was just something in terms of protecting people who are being victimized it's just something that he feels a compulsion to do so when he does this to these people when he when he murders these teenagers it's just, you know, he doesn't get any joy, but it's just something that he feels like it's the right thing to do in this situation. And, and it, you're right. It's weird that as the audience, we sort of agree with him. Which I think is interesting because I think it puts everybody in a morally weird place because on one hand, you're like, yeah, you know, yeah, fuck those guys. <laughs> Go get them. But then, but then you like step back. You're like, well, man, they, they're kids too. You know, I mean, these are all high school kids. And, you know, and as we see, once the bullies start getting eradicated and we start seeing the, the kind of the picked on kids start rising up but yet it's it's all the same old story you know everybody just assumes the former hierarchy just in slightly different ways that um that you know there is the only real villain in this movie is our own nature 
like we are the villain. The humans, in a way, were the villain. That, to me, is the most fascinating thing about this film. And, you know, and that's the thing, David, you know, even though he probably, you know, obviously I think means well morally, killing one person isn't going to change the fact that there's some really dark aspects of, uh, of human nature, especially when the fact, because notice in this film, you don't see any adults till like the very end. Like adults are completely a neutered force in this universe. You don't see anybody's parents. You don't see any teachers. I mean, because I remember when I first saw the rape scene, I'm like, where are the teachers? You know, you don't see any really adults at all. These kids have been left alone. And um, no, to nobody to guide them or protect them. Yeah, absolutely. I think whenever there's a violent incident, and again, it's there's a danger to to applying what you see in Massacre at Central High to real life incidents, especially over the last 15, 20 years where, you know, the violence in schools is something that has become so much more of an issue. But here – Whenever, or, but whenever those incidents do happen, a lot. The first question is, you know, where were the parents? Where, you know, the, these these uh, victimized children or victimized teenagers who who uh, re- rebel in these violent ways? It, you always ask, where are the parents? And I mean, in this movie, the answer is they're just nowhere. They just don't exist in the context of this kind of social hierarchy that they exist in. They're just not important. They they everything that is important to these kids and how their lives interact and how. Um, and how danger is presented to them is all within the confines of that school of the you know six or seven hours a day that they have to spend together. And uh, and I think that's something that someone in their teens and early twenties could really relate to watching this. You really start to see that kind of uh, the natives are restless kind of thing when we have the second death, when we have a high dive into an empty pool that happens. And that's when we get some kind of titters in the audience and some jokes going on, some idea, you know, just like uh, this guy really deserved what he got. And that's really kind of one of the more disturbing moments of the film is when we have this kid who's laying in this pool with his brain spattered all over the place. And, you know, somebody even says, like, is anybody going to help him? You know, tell me somebody they, you know, let the police know or something. And it's just like, oh, yeah, we let the principal know. So, again, this kind of in absentia principal that we never see throughout the whole thing, who is allegedly going off and contacting the authorities to get this kid taken out of the pool. But, yeah, that's the moment for me. And, and one of the things I appreciate about this film, too, is that we never have a moment where we wonder, is it really David killing these people? We don't get that kind of like, ooh, somebody's killing the children of, of Central High. Who could it be? It's completely obvious who it is. And he's very. It's, the film is very open with that, which I really appreciate that we don't have this whole thing of like, ooh, we think that it's David, but I wonder if it's really Mark. But no, thank God we don't have that. Give it three years and that would definitely be what this plot was. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We think it's Skeet Ulrich, but it's really yeah. <laughs> Oh God, no! <laughs> I was so hoping there'd be no Skeet Ulrich references to Massacre at Central High. That's nothing against him. It's just, it's, it's just weird. Well, if we're not talking about Steven Seagal, we'll talk about Skeet Ulrich. Oh God! And then yeah, I think it's even Spoonie who says, "The higher you feel, the deeper you fall." After they they see the body in the pool, and it's just like, yeah, okay, that that's a little. Uh, a little philosophical uh, nugget from you, Spoonie. Thank you very much. I think it's also <laughs> representative of them. Like, I can say this out loud now. Before, I couldn't say it. And that's such a surreal moment, seeing all of those teenagers, or at least they're playing teenagers, all up against the edge of that pool, all looking at this corpse. Uh, I mean, it really kind of, of – of, it's something that's kind of repeated later in the movie that the idea of death to these kids, it's not really – 
that important to them, right? Uh, death is something that seems to be part of their everyday life to one extent or another. Yeah. Which, which actually, I'm, as much as like I kind of have ragged on Mark, and yeah, he is a passive aggressive, terrible <laughs> like character. There's a really great scene where, you know, and I think Andrew Stevens did a good job with this, where you know it's just like you know everybody's dying around him, you know, and Teresa's trying to comfort him, and you know when one of the guys has been like paralyzed but not killed and he, and he, you know, and she's like, well, at least he's still alive. And he's like, so what, we're all going to die. And just the heaviness of being like a kid and just having that kind of like, just that fatalism towards life, which is very disturbing. But I also think it's a great, um, cause Doug, you, you touched upon this and I thought that was great too, is that, you know, I think a lot of people have assumed, uh, that, you know, things like school violence and things like that are more of a recent phenomenon. But I think a lot of it's just, I think we're more aware of things with the way the media is structured to nowadays. Like we have a lot more exposure because, uh, you know, like after massacre, like I think in 79, there was a, an incident in California where a girl shot a couple of kids at her school. And in fact, it was the inspiration for the Boomtown Rats, uh, I Don't Like Mondays. So a little music trivia out of nowhere for this episode. <laughs> Why a film like this is important, too, is it shows people that, you know, none of this is recent. None of this is new. You know, it's the same patterns just continuing and continuing. Oh, yeah. I mean, even when we go back, I think I can't remember who mentioned Lord of the Flies, but I mean, this is this is just human nature, unfortunately, that there's the the haves and the have nots or, or the power structure that goes on. And it happens all over the place. And it's the same way as far as the, the ki- picked on kids and uh, the, the, the bullies. And it's just like, OK, yeah, this has been happening forever. I mean, this whole idea of we're going to eradicate bullies, it's just like, I'm sorry, but that just seems so Pollyanna-ish to me that i mean because there's always going to be bullies unfortunately that just seems the way of the world the idea is that these things are deeper than just the structural aspects of school because you know this movie makes it very clear all of those power dynamics they've always existed they've you know if you went to school in the 50s you saw it or the 60s or the 70s right up to modern day but you know when you, you the only way to break that cycle is to go a little deeper into the structure kind of society as a whole and that's what you know again what i love most about this movie as is that it starts it, as this sort of social commentary about school, it turns into a revenge movie and essentially at the end it almost becomes like a political allegory, especially for like post-Vietnam America, right? Uh, and in fact, I think the fact that David drives around in a Jeep, a military-looking Jeep, might be a play on that. I mean the guy does have the ability to make bombs in his basement or his apartment or whatever, that, whatever hovel he's living in in this movie. But this idea that you know, these power structures are something that exist in school, but they're really reflective of the power structures that exist everywhere else in our lives. Yeah, again, with the whole idea of the no parents, I, I don't think that when he's he's at this new school that he talks about, oh, yeah, my parents moved and here I am. I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, pump up the volume kind of thing. This is just basically he shows up at the school. I mean, the, the, it's weird. Like, And again, yeah, when he's making these bombs and everything, he does seem like the disenfranchised Vietnam vet who's come back and is, you know, fucked up from the war. But no, he's supposedly a high school student, and here he is. Yeah, we don't see the, David, what are you doing out in the shed? You know, there's none of that kind of stuff. I like how you've already brought up Rock and Roll High School, Mike, because it is a movie that I thought about while watching this. But especially, I was just thinking about 
sort of the kind of punk ethos of of that time period. I mean, this movie coming out in 76, I think, is it's an important aspect of it. I mean, this is a very nihilistic movie, right? This is a very cynical movie. And you feel like you're moving towards a more optimistic thing. You think David's going to kind of uh, strengthen his relationship and maybe that maybe he'll realize that there's something worth saving in this. And to an extent, that's what we get. But before we get that, it, it it gets so dark and nihilistic and the idea that, well, the only way to save us is to destroy us, right? Well, yeah, because – so we have Paul getting a kind of a, a death ride in his van. Again, very sad moment for me. And I have to say that the shots out the porthole windows kind of really confused me the first couple times I saw them. I was like, what is going on with this shot? You know, and I finally realized, oh, it's through the porthole windows that that's what's happening here. And just kind of rolling backwards down this mountain road until the the van goes off the side. And of course it explodes. I mean, a a car can't go off of a, a cliff or anything without exploding. That just is physically impossible at least in movies, this is the moment. This is the the really terrible moment where now there's a uh, basically a, a power vacuum at the school, and all of these people who were once picked on suddenly start to take the reins. I was reminded a lot of Animal Farm with this, where it's just like, okay, now we've driven off you know, the farmer, let's set up our own structure. Now we're going to be even worse than the humans that were in charge before. Now we are going to have, you know, snowball being driven off and Napoleon coming to power. It was just like, wow, this is, it it is, it's fucking dark. This gets really dark as we see, you know, Oscar becoming the bully and pushing people around. We see uh, Rodney taking over the, the sweet car from one of the bullies who's dead now. And it just, they are lifting up these mantles and Arthur, who's just spouting off all this kind of ridiculous stuff in the library about, you know, the power dynamics and everything. It's just, it's crazy. And it just gets crazier and crazier as it goes along. This, this power vacuum just makes these kids mad with it. And David's reaction, I think is really important here because you know, he created a revolution in this school, right? He he gave them the dis, the infra, infra, enfranchisement that they were begging for, and once they have it, all they did was try to recreate the old structure that they had, and he becomes so disillusioned with it that there's this realization: okay, there's there's no saving this situation, right? We there's something bigger going on here than just bullies and creeps, uh, and that the fact is. Everyone is is a creep until they're a bully, and every creep wants to be a bully. And now whether that's reflective of real life entirely or not, it's not really important. In this movie, that's what's happening, and the fact that his reaction is, well, they've all got to go, is what really what kind of makes this movie. I mean this is a, a really, really good movie up to this point, but everything that happens from here on in is what I think pushes it over to being great. You know, I think a lot of it with the second batch, the quote unquote, like the creeps, you know, the explosion is part of it's like repression. Because anytime you have like a group of people, like you see it sometimes when governments, you know, fascist governments are overturned. And initially there's a bit of freedom. And sometimes people initially go batshit because they've been repressed and cooped up for so long that it's a natural sort of uh, inclination to kind of act out. 
Um, but also with the nihilism, which I think is an absolute perfect word for the title of this film. Um, it's funny because I really thought – I really feel like the nihilism of this film was almost more – and I mean that was before I realized you know, Renee Dalder was the director. Like the very first time I saw it, I thought, man, this feels like almost like a European film mm. because typically with American cinema, we're – I don't I, – I mean there's obviously a lot of exceptions. But typically I don't think we're quite as nihilistic a lot of times as Europeans are. Like you can see a lot with Westerns. And there were like some darker teen movies made by Americans or at least that were, you know, more American based in the 60s and 70s, particularly Last Summer with Barbara Hershey. That one's pretty dark and definitely an interesting film to check out. Or even something like Blue Summer or later on in the early 80s, Last American Virgin. Of course, that was made by an Israeli filmmaker, so scratch that. But yeah, with Massacre, it is completely, it is almost to me like, I mean, I have, you know, you see that kind of nihilism almost like in something like The Grand Silence, which is a spaghetti Western, but you don't. It is so dark and it's, but it to me, it's dark in a way that's very intelligent. It's very respectful in a way because it's, it makes you think, I mean, I didn't really get the punk thing from that at all. I just, to me, it was like felt more European, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I think it's, it feels pre-punk certainly, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily trying to reflect the, the sort of undercurrent that might've been happening at that time. But I feel like in retrospect in particular, you can see a kid watching this in 1977 or 1978 and seeing it and, and being like, yeah, we need to burn this fucking thing down, right? And we can't just – we can't – there's no fixing it at this point. Uh, our whole structure that's been created by you know decades of, 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 of people who are completely uh, distant from what I have to experience in my everyday life, that can't – I can't relate to that. So I need to start again and the only way we can do that is by destroying what we have. And I feel like there's a real kind of punk attitude behind what David ends up doing even though maybe you wouldn't call it punk in the context of this movie. Well, so I love that we have now David turning against the the new, you know, say hello to the new boss, same as the old boss, so going through and taking care of this new crop of bullies and, and mowing them down as far as using uh, Arthur's hearing aid against him, which is a very, very startling moment. And I love that he just kind of blows his brains out with some sort of supersonic uh, frequency in Arthur's uh, hearing aid. Sonic boom! Oscar with his exploding locker is one of the the best things ever. There's an amazing gif of that out there with him picking up people and then uh, you know his uh, his locker exploding. And then, uh, you know, Spoonie eventually just kind of takes off, like, you know, I don't want to be messed around with all this stuff. So he goes out with uh, Mary and Jane. And then uh, when the locker explodes, you know, that's when uh, Spoonie is just like, I want to get out of here. But there's a great moment of all of these kids running out of the school and everything. And uh, Mark and Teresa in the parking lot. And I looked at them and I just was like, these kids look like human wreckage. You know, they're, they're just completely hopeless. You know, Mark is the last bully standing, but you know, he, he just is there. He's, he's basically been rendered powerless, which I think he's okay with. And then Teresa just kind of comforting him at him. And it's just like, Oh my God. And then of course the coup de gras of uh, Rodney getting into his car and it exploding. It's just like, okay, he's really trying to take care of all of these new bullies. But for me, it's the moment where we have this other character who's just been kind of hanging out in the background, this guy named Harvey, who's just this kind of little shit that we've seen kind of popping up here and there. But when he goes to David 
after David has now mown down this new crop of bullies and he starts to pitch that, you know, together we can rule this school kind of thing. That's the moment when I think David is just like, fuck this. The only way to end this thing is for me to go to this school and just blow this shit up. There's a, a famous line from Joe Strummer that he who fucks nuns will later join the church and this is Harvey is supposed to be representative of, you know, even below the creeps, really, right? The, the regular people who are in that school and once he's kind of, it's put right in David's face that there's just no end to this. That that there's going to be people making power plays right down to the, the, the most quiet person in the back of the class then he realizes that, well, I guess I guess there's only one way to end this. And he's going to take out the student alumni prom. So he's going to wipe out. This is finally we get any sort of adult type of intervention in this film. Not even intervention because these people are just at this dance. All these generations of people who have been at this high school and who have apparently survived this high school are there. And that's when Mark and Teresa show up. And basically they are there just to make sure that David doesn't blow up the school. I mean, basically it's it's this almost uh, a a bluff, you know, is David going to kill his only friend and this girl who was nice to him? And really, I think it's more the girl than uh, Andrew Stevens' character that keeps him from blowing up the school. At least that's how I saw it. It kind of reminded me of, of King Kong, you know, it seemed like it was beauty that kills the beast here. I think to some extent. I mean, I think that that David once um, once he is convinced that there's no innocence in this school, and that's why you have to wipe it clean. Teresa is sort of the one thing that he's holding on to, which is you know that that and maybe it's a little unfair, or maybe it's a little stereotypical that she is the one who kind of has to save him and the way that he gets saved in particular. But but she is seen as the kind of goodness that can still exist and can still kind of thrive in this school. And uh, once he has that nihilism and once he kind of gives up on all of that, that's when he plans the bomb. But her still existing is enough to make him understand, well, maybe there's still a little bit of hope out there. And then what happens happens. (laughs) Well, and then that bizarre thing. So what happens is him showing up, you know, of course, wearing a trench coat, which maybe have been a kind of a, a foreshadowing as the, the trench coat mafia, as it were. And he ends up blowing up himself. But I love how we end with uh, David and Teresa basically talking about how they're going to cover it up. They're going to make David into a hero. They're going to say they're going to put the blame on Spoonie, that Spoonie was the one who was planting bombs and that David found the last bomb and, and was the one that saved everybody. So it's just this, again, completely nihilistic type of ending where it's like this guy was murdering all these people but we're going to end up painting him as a hero you know it kind of reminded me of like a a travis bickle type ending which i suppose is appropriate for 1976 yeah no definitely and i mean it, it's it's such a strange ending it's so sudden as well because it's like they got to spit out that dialogue because the action is over what also is really interesting was what happens immediately before that little piece of dialogue where like even the adults are coming out and seeing that the, the mess left over basically David's corpse is sort of within this these kind of flaming wreckage there. And, and it's like they don't understand what they're seeing. Right. It's it's just this kind of extended sense of denial over. <laughs> you think there'd be some concern from all of those adults over the fact that so many students have died over the last few weeks. But it, it just 
it's funny that they even feel like they do have to cover it up at the end because who even cares? Is it the police? We hear the police coming at the end. We see them coming, but they haven't given a shit about anything up to this point. So, uh, you know, it, it makes you wonder if, if turning David into a hero or making him appear to be a hero, does that even matter? Because no one seems to be looking deeper than the surface anyway. I'm trying to remember. There's a line of dialogue that one of the parents says. I mean, do they even recognize David as being a body? Don't they seem to think that it's just like some trash yeah, that's burning? Exactly. They don't see what, like, despite the fact they heard just something explode outside the school, and now you have this flaming record. It's like they can't see it. it, it it's weird because I think the dialogue hints right right before the uh, you get the sirens and you see that the police are coming that that maybe they do start to recognize what is that in there like what are we seeing um, and maybe that's supposed to be symbolic of something maybe it's the realization maybe David you know basically self immolating in front of the school maybe that is is the wake up call that some of these parents need I think that's a, that's maybe an optimistic way to look at it but you know I'm an optimistic guy as opposed to this nihilistic film <laughs> that's right <laughs> and I'm over here being like truth is dead. <laughs> <laughs> which which you know i do i love it that you guys pointed that out about just you know what is even the point of them covering it up i don't know if it's maybe for like the school history you know within the student body but also i think just having like we don't see the adults just pop up until the very end when you know every you know so many people have been killed and david's dead and now you guys show up i mean i think it's a great sort of sign of just how impotent the adults are in this universe so we are going to take a break and play some interviews here. Now, just to give you guys a little bit of uh, how the sausage is made here at the Projection Booth, normally when I introduce interviews, they're almost always all in the can. Every once in a while, it's like, well, I'll be talking to this guy like in a day or something, and I can rely on getting this person and everything. So two interviews are in the can for this episode right now, and that's uh, with the guy that played Spoonie. Robert Carradine, and the person that played David, who's Andrew Stevens. Now, unfortunately, neither Andrew nor Robert necessarily remember that much about making Massacre at Central High. Uh, so the, it, there's some interesting interviews because they basically don't say much about them. So you'll hear some, some, uh, some good stories, hopefully, from these guys from some of their other films, but you're not going to hear a whole lot when it comes to Massacre at Central High. But over the last day or so, I have managed to secure some interviews with uh, uh, Rex Steven Syke, who uh, played Rodney. Hopefully he remembers more, uh, so uh, fingers crossed on that. And uh, also uh, Daryl Morey, who plays David, so the star of the whole thing, I really hope he remembers working on Massacre at Central. I mean, this was his first big starring role. So fingers crossed that when this plays, you're going to hear four full interviews. And hopefully two of them will include some really good memories of working on Massacre at Central High. Because uh, as we were working through this whole thing, uh, Heather, I think you just kept saying, this film is cursed. (laughs) There's no way. This film is cursed. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that Daryl Morey will be, I think he could be our curse breaker. Like, I feel like the hope lies uh, firmly on his shoulders. Plus, I think this is a good sign. We have discussed a Daryl Morey appearance before on the show because he has a brief part in Looker with Susan Day and Albert Finney. So, so hopefully maybe that's some good juju going <laughs> for this. Well, and even if he doesn't remember much about Massacre at Central High, he was a regular on Joni Loves Chachi and Happy Days. So two of my... Uh, well, I can't say that Joni Loves Chachi was a favorite film, but uh, a favorite show. But 
Happy Days was one of my most favorite TV shows ever, and he played uh, three, four different characters on that. So hopefully, I'll be able to talk to him about you know his reoccurring role. I mean, he actually had a role in Happy Days that he ended up doing in Joni Loves Chachi, so should be pretty good. So with all that, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we'll hopefully have four interviews from the cast of Massacre at Central High. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. 
at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Growing up with your mom being such a successful actress, was it always kind of your ambition to get into show business? I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. And my mother lived in California. I lived in Memphis for the uh, majority of my childhood uh, with my grandparents. And I graduated from high school in Memphis. So there was really not a connection. So what kind of spurred you to get into show business and, and especially the acting part of it? Hormones. I was a drummer for most of my uh, adolescent and pubescent and teen life. And uh, after my junior year in high school, uh, I wasn't getting along with the music instructor. I had a vacancy in my schedule and walking down the hallway, kind of thinking of what I would replace as an elective, I saw a beautiful buxom blonde woman with tinted glasses in a classroom, I was oh my God, who is that? And a buddy of mine said, oh, that's the new speech teacher and drama teacher. I said, what is that? I'd never taken a speech or drama course in my life. And I said, I don't care. I ran down to the guidance counseling office. I cajoled my way into taking the only class that fit my schedule, which was an advanced acting class. But one had to have a prerequisite of having taken at least a basic speech course, which I had not. Uh, and I got that waived by uh, a very kind lady in, in, uh, in the guidance counseling office. And I truly was hormonally spurred into taking on extracurricular projects just to be with her and to challenge me she entered me in these uh, speech and drama competitions, and oddly, I started to win, and I won, I won, I won, I won. And uh, she changed my material about midway through the season, uh, and I, I said, why are you doing that? We're, we're winning every tournament, she said, because I want to know if it's you and me being the director and the actor, or if it's the material, we went diametrically opposed to the material we had been doing, and we won. We won first first place in the district, which was comprised of an eighth of the state of Tennessee. We went to Na- uh, to Nashville, and we uh, competed and won first place in the state. That may have been the only thing that my school ever won state in, but I was the top high school actor in the state of Tennessee. I won college scholarships. She uh, was applying them to a school in St. Augustine, Florida. And I went to Los Angeles in the summer before going away to join my girlfriend at college. And I was at a party. I ran into a guy who uh, introduced himself. His name was Dick Clayton. I had no clue who he was. And he started questioning me. 
And, you know, I sort of reluctantly went through this whole litany of my high school accolades, not imagining that anyone would be interested. And he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going away to school. He said, for what? I said, to get my degree. He said, in what? I said, theater arts. He said, for what? I said, so I can be an actor. He said, you don't need a degree, kid. You need an agent. I said, what's an agent? He said, me. Dick Clayton represented Jane Fonda, Burt Reynolds, Candace Bergen, Jan Michael Vincent, the biggest stars of the day. And he signed me and started sending me on auditions. I never took another job. I sustained uh, my own livelihood from 17 years old on as an actor. And uh, that's basically the inception of it. Looking at your CV for 74 and then especially in the 75, it's just like roll after roll after roll after roll. Yeah, I think I made $6,000 in 74 and $12,000 in 75. But, <laughs> but it was it was a prolific, a prolific pittance. How did you come to be in Massacre at Central High? It was a, kind of a low-rent movie that I auditioned for, and I ended up getting it. What was it like working with Renee Dadler, the director? He was drunk most of the time. He was uh, he drank beer incessantly, but it seemed to be the Dutch way. He smoked incessantly. He was charismatic. He was enthusiastic. He was fun. He was funny. We would uh, commiserate with him, and we spent some social time with him. Uh, his his friend was a guy named Jan de Bont. Obviously, went on to be a very successful film director. He uh, she, he was married to uh, Monique van der Ven. And Monique van der Ven, I had seen Keep Jatipel and Turkish Delight back in the 70s, and I was so drop-dead enamored in love with her. Uh, and I got to meet her through him. And Bert von Munster, who was the uh, cinematographer, went on, of course, to be the great uh, producer of Amazing Race uh, and and more. But uh, I, you know, we were just young kids, and it was kind of a kind of a lark. I mean, it was very undisciplined. Tell me, what was it like working with some of the other people in the cast? I mean, this was such a great, great cast of of young actors. I, I find it amazing that we're talking about a movie that I barely remember as being significant because it was completely insignificant to me at the time and certainly from a career standpoint. I guess it was different in that we were pretty much all kids rather than, you know, and some of us were the right age and some of and some of the cast were older playing younger, but, you know, two or three years older perhaps. So maybe it was interesting from that standpoint that there were no adults. With movies like this one and, and Boys and Company C, I mean, you were in some really terrific ensemble casts. I mean, what, what was kind of the, 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 the whole idea of sharing the workload with these other actors? I mean, was there a co competition between you guys or, or was it uh, a pretty friendly kind of go of everyone is in this together? I think on that perspective, high, it was pretty much a friendly go and everybody's in this together. Some were more intense than others. Some took themselves more seriously, but uh, and some were sort of running jokes among the cast. But in terms of Boys and Company C, that was a real film director and a real opportunity to do uh, sort of a verite style movie about real subject matter. 
and they were vastly different. Uh, I, I mean, yes, there was competition on the Boys and Company C because we knew we had this tremendous opportunity to actually do something that people might see and that might actually get a release through a studio, which it did. And I went on to be nominated for a Golden Globe Award. So it was light years more significant than, you know, uh, frivolity in the 70s. I was curious, when did you first meet Brian De Palma? Had you known him before the whole, like, Carrie Star Wars audition? I truly don't even remember that. I, I do remember there was a cattle call audition, and I didn't know who this George guy was, but I'd heard of De Palma, and uh, I remember uh, I could have cared less about the the science fiction movie because I really didn't get the material, and I I certainly was surprised that it became uh, a cultural phenomenon. But that shows what poor taste I have. But uh, I did think that Carrie was interesting. I thought De Palma was interesting and engaging, whereas the other guy wasn't so much. Uh, I I felt that, uh, uh, however. The cast members were six and seven years older than I was playing high school. So I kind of wasn't, uh, when you're casting up in age, you sort of have to cast across the board in similar ages or it just doesn't look right. So when I came to meet him for the Fury, uh, he remembered me, and obviously we went through uh, another audition process, but there was a familiar, familiarity. Yeah, what was that like being cast in the lead of The Fury? That must have been a, a pretty terrific feeling for you. Yeah, it was the same time that I was... Uh, had, I had just done a miniseries called The Bastard, in which I played the titular role with every TV star and uh, Hollywood legend imaginable. And I was the uh, lead character and all of them were my supporting cast. Uh, the particular venue that it aired on was called Operation Primetime. And all the stations actually paid per percentage of market share, their share of the budget to air this miniseries as many times as they saw fit. And they promoted it to death. So every time you turn on the TV, tonight at eight, Andrew Stevens is the bastard, starring William Shatner, Tom Mosley, Bill Daniel, blah, 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 and this litany of stars, the likes of which you've never seen in one show together, and Andrew Stevens is the bastard. Well, The Bastard on network television at that time was a saucy title, and Jay Leno did a routine, Second City did a routine because it was so ubiquitous. And that was actually shot after Boys and Company C, but before Boys and Company C aired. And I was under contract to Universal Studios. I was doing a Western series called The Oregon Trail. And I got offered the role in The Fury. They were going to turn it down. I had to do a, uh, a command performance for the head of the studio to allow me to do The Fury. And so I flew back and forth from Flagstaff, Arizona, where we were shooting the series, to Chicago, Los Angeles, Israel. Uh, you know, I never really got my feet on the ground much during the shoot of the Fury because it was so fragmented, but uh, you know, it was good to have done the picture. With the Fury, it's interesting because you kind of start out as a hero and then you morph into a villain as you're going along. Do you find it more fun to play the hero or the villain? 
I don't find it either, really. I, I um, you know, if it's if it's a good role, and there are some character handles that you can uh, latch onto and and try and do something interesting. And it's we're talking about acting because I haven't acted in almost 25 years. So I'm trying to recall a quarter of a, a quarter of a century ago when I actually used to do this and took it seriously. But you know, people seem to remember villains if they are impactful, but, uh, you know, I played a handful, but, you know, the majority of my career, I was the, uh, the hero and the good guy in the fury. He was sort of the victim of the super secret government organization that destroyed, uh, this kid. And it was, it was an uneven film kind of fragmented and, and, uh, strangely concocted and and, uh, and and weirdly pieced together. If you'd read the John Ferris novel, it was much more cohesive. Kind of along those lines, you talked about not acting for so many years. How did you get into producing? I planned my exit strategy so I would never have to act again <laughs> back, in the, back in the late 80s. I realized that I had become disenamored with acting, didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, I kind of started studying the international market and obviously wanted to be in the film business. Uh, I realized that I had a cachet in certain markets and I created my own vehicles, unfortunately, as an actor. And I said to my girlfriend, who became my wife at the time, I said, I'm going to do some roles as an actor that I probably shouldn't be doing to leverage my way out so I never have to act again. And that's precisely what I did. So I would barter my acting services to produce, to direct, to write, uh, both in film and television. Your credits as producer have just been really amazing. What have been some of your favorite projects to do? Every film is kind of a beating. It should be a love fest and a privilege, but, uh, uh, you know, there's always such dissent and with, Hollywood agents and attorneys and managers and uh, <laughs> generally the bigger the star, the bigger the pain in the ass. Uh, it's it's work. And uh, occasionally you'll have something that, that's fulfilling. Uh, it's show business, not show art. Uh, occasionally art happens along the way. Uh, but for the most part, particularly as I sort of cracked the code on the marketplace and figured out how to finance these movies and own them. Uh, and that was the key is that I was the financier, sales agent, distributor, owner of the pictures and had various companies over the years, uh, usually with just one partner. Uh, I had a, a couple of different partners in, uh, in different companies, but I was doing volume because I knew it was a limited window. And uh, from 1993 through the end of 94, I did a, I had a company called Sunset Films International, did 19 films in one year, uh, produced seven in-house, acquired 12. And then I started a company called Royal Oaks Entertainment from 94 to 97, did 70 films in three years, uh, produced 56, I produced 56 in-house, of which I conceived them all, uh, wrote the stories, created the marketing materials, 
pre-sold them, and my partner was the uh, he oversaw the bank financing. I oversaw all the creative. I was still directing one film a year. And uh, then I changed my business strategy in 1997 and created Franchise Pictures, which uh, created with two partners, bought the other partner out, and uh, ended up with with one partner over the five and a half years that I was there. And uh, we produced probably another 75 pictures in that five and a half years. Uh, I always had different lines when I was making the smaller films. I had an action line, a family line, and a thriller line. When I was making bigger films, I had a studio theatrical release line, which were, you know, tens of millions of dollars to, you know, hundred million dollar budget of pictures with, you know, anywhere from forty to eighty million dollars of putting advertising money at the time, which was substantial, things have spiraled upwards since then. Uh, I had an art house line. I had four pictures in three years in Sundance, pictures in Venice, Toronto, Berlin. You know, I had one picture in competition in Cannes, which was The Pledge, starring Jack Jack Nicholson, directed by Sean Penn. And and so I had this sort of art house uh, specialty film line, and then I had my straight-to-video line, which I did uh, eight Stephen Seagal's, five or six Wesley Snipes, a couple of Van Dams, four or five Dolph Lundgren's, and a partridge in a pear tree. Yeah, I have to say, you you talked about The Pledge just briefly there, and that is probably one of my favorite films over the last 20 years, one that I don't think gets nearly the recognition that it should. How did you kind of get involved with that one? Sean came to us to see if we could get the picture financed. Nobody'd make it, and we did. Uh, we put it out through Warner Brothers. We uh, uh, were uh, <laughs> we got the call that we were uh, one of you know the handful of twelve or sixteen films that were in competition in the main competition in Cannes. I'd had a, a picture there maybe a year or two before called Things You Could Tell Just by Looking at Her, which was Rodrigo Garcia's debut. And it was in the uncertain regard category, but we were in the main category with the pledge. So I actually got to uh, buzz down the closet in the uh, Citrons with the lights flashing and the sirens blaring, and, you know, walk up the red carpet, take off the sunglasses, wave to the crowd and, you know, go and watch the movie. That must have been quite a feeling. It was great. It was it was actually uh, uh, way more fulfilling than you know just making movies and going to the obligatory premiere and then waiting to see the box office. Yeah, you know, we've actually covered a couple of the the films that you've produced on the show. I was wondering, do you have any good stories about um, Battlefield Earth or Get Carter? <laughs> well, I have known Johnny. Um, Trolls it for many, many years. Uh, in fact, back in the late 70s, I went with my girlfriend at the time who had the same manager as, as John, and I went with the three of them to the premiere of this movie uh, and the after party, and I knew nothing about it other than he was one of the sweat hogs on, uh, on Welcome Back, Cotter, and I saw this movie called Saturday Night Fever with him. Uh, so uh, we were in different positions, and obviously he became a big movie star, and uh, I was the producer financier. 
you know, he had this uh, uh, manager at the time that was always running interference. And, you know, I sort of had to fly up to the set from time to time and try to uh, 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 coddle the production along, as it, as it were, without, you know, upsetting the apple cart. And because it was based on an L. Ron Hubbard novel, we uh, were continually taken into the inner sanctum of author services, which is the edifice and the uh, custodians of all of L. Ron Hubbard's works. So it was it was a uh, it was a uh, a unique experience. You know, it's probably a movie that should never have been made, but my partner committed to William Morris to making the movie in exchange for opening the floodgates to their talent. And our next commitment was Bruce Willis for the whole nine yards. So if we hadn't greenlit Battlefield Earth, we would never have made the whole nine yards or Art of War with Wesley Snipes. And then you've worked with, I I mentioned Gig Carter before, you've worked with uh, Sylvester Stallone quite a few times. Um, I believe three. We did a movie, uh, aside from Get Carter, we did a film called Driven, which was open-wheel racing when the kart circuit was still uh, viable. And then we did a movie called Avenging Angelo, which was uh, Anthony Quinn's last film, uh, co-starring Madeline Stowe. And I'm curious, what are you working on these days? I live in Dallas, Texas, and I have children and a new wife, and she has children, and we have a blended Brady Bunch family. Uh, I have a website, which is andrewstevens.info, which is uh, a, a lot of comprehensive uh, services that I offer. Uh, I consult I uh, I write books for an academic publisher, and I also have uh, books that I sell on my own, on my own website, uh, which uh, foolproof filmmaking, which is my unique paradigm of making movies and make, making a profit. Uh, I just finished producing for profit for Routledge, a division of Taylor and Francis under the American Film. Arctic Presents Banner, which uh, is being marketed to universities, colleges, film schools all over the English-speaking world, made available in hardcover and paperback. And uh, I just finished a first draft of screenwriting for profit. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of covering the for-profit series as though it were the Four Dummies series in the yeah, in the filmmaking uh, aspect. I do speaking engagements. I do seminars. I had an eight-hour on-camera film school that's available on DVD and, and Vimeo download, uh, all available on the website. You know, people say, well, are you still making movies? And my answer is, I make deals. So if there's a deal, yes. Uh, I made a little film uh, two or three years ago. Uh, I took a year off last year and got married and, uh, you know, and kind of uh, redirected my life. But if, uh, you know, I've got all kinds of things in development, but the business has changed so dramatically. There are six conglomerates that monopolize the world, and uh, the independent business as we knew it doesn't really exist at all. I'm not a very good employee, so I will work (laughs) with other people's money and or work for hire in control 
but uh, I don't invest my money in movies anymore. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for thinking of me, and uh, maybe you can answer a question for me. Why in the world are we talking about an obscure little film that was obscure in 1974 and has to be increasingly obscure as time goes on called The Massacre at Central High? Is there a fascination with this movie in some subculture? There definitely is. Yeah, it is. Um, it has just seemed to gain a reputation over time. It was kind of tough to find for many years and was finally brought back out in, on DVD. Um, and yeah, it's uh, actually they're working on restoring it for Blu-ray. Uh, uh, actually, a local company here in Detroit does this called Synapse, and they're working with uh, Renee to try to restore it and put it out there. So yeah, it's uh, it it still has legs, believe it or not, all these years later. <laughs> Always curious uh, <laughs> why. Uh, things sort of uh, sustain over the years. Boondock Saints, I get it. Uh, this, this one, it's, it's perplexing, but awesome. done some television work and you really kind of got into movies in the early 70s what was acting your first love because i know that you were a big race car fan and also you were in the music at the same time yeah well i figured out in my teenage years that you know that i was i was good at racing and i was good at playing music i hadn't really tried the acting yet the acting came after the the music and the racing had sort of developed you know, at that time when I was just, like when I was in my first movie, the John Wayne movie, The Cowboys, you know, I was spending way too much time on the local street racing circuit here uh, on a famous street called Mulholland Drive. Uh, a lot of people have heard of it, but, uh, you know, for those of you that haven't, it's it's a road that, that runs along the, the top of the Hollywood Hills. Uh, the Hollywood Hills separate the San Fernando Valley from Los Angeles. And this road is uh, famous for its curves. So I used to spend an inordinate amount of time up there and, uh, you know, perfecting my skills as a racing driver. I don't condone it for anybody listening. It's not really the best place to do it, but uh, that's what I did. So why did you decide to go into the acting? Well, sort of got shoved down my throat by my brother, David. He said, they're doing a a Western over at Warner Brothers, and you might be right for it. You want to go in and meet on it? I said, no. And he said, well, it's a John Wayne Western. And I said, well, I'd, uh, it makes me nervous. I, I don't really want to go over there. And he said, well, listen, Robert, you got everything to gain and nothing to lose. So with those sage words of advice, I went in there, and lo and behold, I got the job. Fifteen weeks later, I thought, that's a pretty good way to make a living. I didn't realize that the Cowboys ended up turning into a TV series. Yeah, it ran for half a season. I had to talk A. Martinez into doing it because I thought it was a great idea, but I guess as it turned out, it wasn't that great an idea without John Wayne. The character, Will Anderson, who was famously played by John Wayne, uh, they got another actor to play that role, and it didn't quite, it didn't, it just didn't quite work, you know? 
you did a lot of work with the the Corman folks in your early days. What was that kind of like working with, uh, you know, being in like the Pom Pom Girls and Swinging Cheerleaders and some of those films? Well, the the Pom Pom Girls, uh, that was Crown International. It was shot for a song. It wound up making $17 million domestically, which in those days, you know, for a film that was shot for 300000 uh, that was a huge hit. I think it had a lot to do with some of the subsequent uh, teen uh, romp movies that came out. You know, it sort of was the idea that every, everybody tried to copy. What was it like working with uh, Paul Bartel on uh, Cannonball? He struck me as being kind of spacey, but, uh, but you know, fun-loving and, and harmless, you know? He's just a little spaced out. You know, he just... I, I would see him standing there staring off into space when we should be trying to set up our next shot. I, I never could quite figure him out, but uh, he was uh, he was a colorful person, let's put it that way. What kind of memories do you have of Massacre at Central High? Well, I remember the uh, landslide bit where we were supposed to get crushed. I, I think they had these big, giant, papier-mâché boulders that they rolled down on us. I don't really remember much about the movie, though. Just so we had some pretty cute girls on it, uh, like Rainbow Smith, she comes to mind. Our lead actor, Daryl Mari, was uh, very diligent and uh, took, the, took the movie very seriously. I guess the rest of us hooligans didn't take it all that seriously. Do you remember what it was like working with Renee Dadler? Renee Dalder? Is he the director for Massacre at Central High? Yeah, it's, I think if I'm not mistaken, he might have been European. He was just trying to make a movie, you know? Like I said, that, that movie happened so long ago, it's uh, nearly impossible to remember anything about it. I mean, you've been in so many things over the years. It has to be a challenge for you to kind of remember some of these early roles that you were in, or even some of the, I imagine, some of the walk-ons that you've done over the years. You know, there's a few standouts that, you know, it doesn't matter how much time passes, you remember them like they were yesterday. I think uh, the first time I really remember seeing you in something was probably either Coming Home or The Long Riders. Oh, yeah, and those are both great uh, great films. Coming Home, I mean, being on a set with John Voight and Jane Fonda, who went on to win Academy Awards for their performances in that movie, that was spectacular. What a great gift it was to be in that movie. Now, would you say that 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 was the one that kind of put you on the map, or would it be the big red one? Because you just you had such a great role in that one. Yeah, probably the big red the the big red one started a pretty good stream of work coming my way because the big red one and the Long Riders were shot about eight months apart, and they both uh, wound up going to the Cannes Film Festival as uh, two of the four American films in competition. So. That particular year, 1980, at Cannes, um, I was kind of hot stuff. I mean, some photographers walked up to me when I was just, you know, walking down the street, and they said, we want to take your picture. And I go, okay. And they said, here, put on this coat. And they gave me a leather coat to put on, and they took my picture. And it wound up on the cover of Luomo Vogue, which is the Italian men's Vogue. So, you know, there's just stuff. I didn't realize what was happening. I just was having a good time in Cannes uh, at the festival. But uh, I'd say, yeah, that's that's when things started to roll. With the Long Raiders, I mean, could have been perceived as a stunt casting as far as having the three sets of, of brothers being the, the main characters. 
what was that like behind the scenes? I mean, it, it's got to be one thing to be working with your brothers, and then it's got to be something else to be working with these other guys who are working with their family. Right. They're all brothers. It was hilarious. Um, we had a lot of hijinks. You know, there were four sets of brothers. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot Christopher Guest. Yeah. Yeah, Christopher Guest and his brother Nick. But it was great. I mean, it was truly great. That might be the high point of my career in terms of uh, having a good time on a motion picture. What was Walter Hill like to work with? He was totally laid back. Yeah, just unflappable and totally cool guy. I remember one day it was raining. Uh, it had been raining all night. Started to, it, The rain kept going into the next day. And his Chapman crane got stuck in the mud. And, you know, like the grip truck got stuck in the mud. And he's walking past him. And he, he looks at him. He just goes, shit. And I go, that's it? He goes, yeah. That was his temper tantrum. <laughs> what have been some of your favorite ones to do? You talked about the Long Riders, and I know that's one of them. And then I, w- I would think uh, Big Red One. Oh, yeah, Big Red One. And, of course, Revenge of the Nerds was just uh, a stellar moment in time. Uh, it was just awesome. We, as a cast, we got along really great. Uh, went out to dinner every night, and everybody was totally supportive of each other. And uh, it was just a great experience. I mean, we knew we were having a good time, but we didn't know if it was going to translate. And frankly, we didn't care. We just were having a good time making it. And what was it like kind of going back to that character in the sequels? It was okay. You know, I I really wish that part two, the second one, had been a better film because uh, we were all still kind of in our our prime in terms of uh, being right for the roles. But, uh, you know, it was kind of, it, it kind of had the same beats to it that the first film had, and it just it didn't have a lot of, of originality. But we still had a great time making it. And, you know, it was a good and a chance for us to all be together again. And then uh, the third one was fairly forgettable. And uh, the fourth one had a lot of charm to it. You know, we had Jamie Cromwell come back as my dad, and uh, Julia Montgomery came back as my wife. Um, it, was, it was good. It was a good time. I have to say, I was very sad when King of the Nerds went off the air because I was uh, watching that one from the beginning, and it was such a fun show. I know, and it was getting better every year. Well, they didn't have a lot of foresight to keep it going, so that's the trouble. With, you know, you don't have any control over the networks, and they had a big shakeup there in their hierarchy, and when a new hierarchy comes in, they tend to clean house and... You know, I think the only show that survived that was Rizzoli and Isles. So what have you been up to lately? Well, I just did a Western in New Mexico, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And then I did a children's film. It's not really a children's film, but it's aimed at the young, younger audience down in South Carolina, and that was a lot of fun. In about a week here, I'm going to be playing a judge, and the director asked me to grow my beard, so I guess he wants me to be a hanging judge. So that should be fun everything okay? I know you had a big accident a few months ago. Yeah, I've got a little stiffness in my wrist, but that's about it. My leg healed up really well, and yeah, it's uh, it's all pretty good. You weren't out racing again, were you? No, no, I was just driving down the highway. What was it like being in Sharktopus versus Terracuda? Oh, that was a trip. Yeah, we shot that in the Dominican Republic, and uh, you know, we had a Dominican crew, so a lot of them didn't speak English. So that was uh, 
that was really had some challenges to it. Like the stunt department, they didn't speak English and we had some stunts to do. So, uh, that was kind of a trip, but, uh, they were really nice people. And I would love to go back to the Dominican Republic because they took really good care of us. I suppose there are worse places to be than the Dominican Republic. I want to know how you got into the business. I got into the business as about three years old, not professionally, but my parents put me into dance classes and then ultimately acrobatic classes. So at three, by four or five, I was taking acting classes. They were all amateur productions. I did in that practice suite that I was three or four. Um, just a small part, but there were recitals and other performances, and, and I loved it. And about the time I was four or five, I enjoyed sitting on my mom's lap and watching the Marx Brothers and said, I'm going to do that someday. And I, I loved old movies. And I, I think that's what I wanted to do. I did the traditional high school and everything else. But, but when I was 17, 18, I said, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm going professional. I think I was 18 or 19 when I got my SAG card in L.A. And I've been doing it ever since. What were some of your early roles? I did a lot of non-union before I became a union actor. But most of the time, when I was a young guy, I played killers, drug addicts, rapists. I played bad guys. I played the friend of the guy. I was always the, the friend of the guy who got the girl. I since have graduated to alcoholics, grandfathers, parents, or fathers, uh, priests, and a lot of sheriffs, cops, and detectives. So I, I've switched. I've, I've put on some angelic wings, and I now investigate the crimes they used to commit. How did you get the role in uh, Massacre at Central High? My agent called one day and said I had an interview, and it was up in the Hollywood Hills, and gave me an address. And, and, and at that time, it was to go to the director's house and to read. So I went up to Rosa Renee's house, Renee Golder, the director. And he was, at the time, talking with the reading or, or auditioning Kimberly Beck. So I sat with Bert Bandmeister, the, the cinematographer, and I had a, a portfolio of different headshots, photographs, movie stills, things like that. And Bert asked if he could see it. And I said yes. And he went through and went, wow, you are just so photogenic. You are so very photogenic. And I went, well, that's very cool. I appreciate that. No one ever said I was good looking. They just said, you know, you, you've got a great face for camera. Renee came out at some point and said, okay, you know, talk to me. And I went, uh, all right, uh, I like your view. And Renee's like, yes, but talk to me. And I said, I... Uh, like your view. And meanwhile, Bertie's going, hey, Renee, look at this. Look at how photogenic it is. Yeah, 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 I've seen this picture. And he's like, no, no, but look, look, look. And he's like, yeah, 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 see him talk to me. I'm like, I, I, I like your view, okay? I, I mean, I, what do you want me to say? He goes, okay, you can go. I'm done. And, and, and Bert's like, but he's so photogenic. So I drive, and this is probably three or four o'clock. It's heavy L.A. traffic. I get home. I live in the Los Feliz area. I get home at Five or six o'clock, if, if if and it was dark. I think it was like November, December. You know, it was winter time, and uh, I got home and the phone was ringing. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And the phone was ringing, and I picked it up, or I answered the answering machine or something. But I picked it up. It's amazing. Going get back to the house. I want to see you. So I turned around. I drove all the way back to this house, and uh, got there. And Renee said, uh, "Okay, 
here, actually. I think I read from more than one part, but I don't really recall. I remember reading the Rodney part. And anyway, he sent me off into a, a bedroom by myself with a script to go learn this thing and then come back. So after a little while, I came out and he read with me. I, as I recall the part of Rodney, and he goes, okay, I have some news for you. And I said, what? He goes, you have the part. And I went, oh, well, hey, thanks very much. <laughs> you know? And uh, he said, you can go. You know, kind of, I was like almost dismissed. You know, like, okay, cool, you have the part. So I shot down the hill to then tiny nailers uh, in the valley, and I called, I said, hey, I got the part. He goes, well, we will see. We shall see. Don't, don't, you know, kind of your chickens before they ask you. So well, the director said, he said, yeah, well, wait until the paper's signed. And I said, okay. And uh, shortly thereafter, like within a week or so, everything was signed. At some point, we had a, a general cast meeting. And the last person to get onto the show was Jeffrey Winter, who a wonderful guy. I hope you get to talk to him. Jeffrey played Oscar, and Jeffrey had to gain weight for the role. And so he, but he was the last guy to be seen. The rest of us are sitting there while he goes in. I think there were two people, and one one was told to go home, and Jeffrey was told, "Okay, you can join us." And uh, and so the cast of thirteen was assembled. I think this was a Saturday. We were on Sunset Boulevard at the production offices, and uh, I think we started filming in February or March, but early, late winter, early spring, uh, shot around the LA area, as I recall. It was fun. It was great, and it was, you know, um, I played the one poor student. You would think there would be many, but we were in a rich high school, and I played, I played the one poor, uh, the poorest student of the bunch. So I have an old jalopy car, and uh, fortunately, Daryl Murray, who plays David, befriends me and comes to my uh, rescue because I'm being bullied, and uh, and the rest is history. And he didn't help out the poor guy when he was fixing up your car. Come on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and uh, and I didn't even help out. I wasn't there handing wrenches or tools. God, this is so great. Thank you so much. I was just off tending to the chickens or whatever that was, that we had. That my pa said, uh, you know, they would be disturbed by whatever. What were your memories of the shoot? What? How, how was it for you? I liked it. I think we shot like three weeks, and I think I was on it three weeks, and then there was an extra week, and I was I had been for that part I was done, and so there was still you know some of the the. Uh, Closing shots, and Tom Logan had some scenes that were done in the garage. The closing scenes with with he and um, David or Harvey and David and Penn. Uh, um, I loved it. I mean, I I love making movies. I there's I mean even even the productions that have been my most nightmarish and massacre was not anything. Not I mean it was an easy shoot by comparison. Even those that make me question like why am I doing what I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing it because that is the dream. You know, you take the good with the bad, you take the obstacles with the with the easy pathways. And um, I just directed a small shoot the other day, and you know, people are tired after you know eight or ten hours. And I'm like, oh, God, I could go another six more days. I get energized by the whole process, and so uh, you know, when everybody's wrapping and sending everybody home, I'm like, okay, can we do more? And and so for me, that was like massacre. You know. It, I don't remember any skirmishes. I know there were some scenes that took very long. One scene that Bobby and I had, I, I, I've talked about this before, Bobby had a, a mouthful of dialogue. It was very difficult for anyone to say. And it took him 15 or 20 times to be able to get it right. And, and it took me a number of times to get it right. So, you know, you're making a movie and, and some scenes go long. And 
uh, or you take over and over and over again, you know, and we had a few of those, but, but we all got really close. We would go out, uh, the cast would go out, we'd, uh, hang out, have meals, go have cocktails. Uh, we all were friends for the most part during the shoot. And, and, and we, I, most of us remain friends to each other uh, to this day. What was Renee like to work with as a director? I liked Renee, and I mean he was he was fun. And, and Tom Logan and I went down. We were we were getting ready to see where I punched Tom, and we were wired. And Renee was on headphones, and it was taking forever and ever and ever. And I think and I think he and I started rumbling. As we get to the shot, you know, we just stand here all day, and you know, and probably one of us had you know some you know some swear or curse word in there at some point. Eric <laughs> Renee's like the Yankee headphones up because. You know, I'm sure he swear back. <laughs> just, you know, we're going to shoot. Be ready, you know. Um, Renee and I are, are close now. We talk. And, uh, I mean, uh, I see him when I'm back in, you know, back in L.A. And uh, I, uh, whenever I can. And he's busy. He's a very forward thinker. He's a, he's a complete innovator. I don't know if you've talked to him that. I've been trying to get him on, on my show, too. And uh, he's very hard to pin down because he's... But, um, and he hated Massacre for many years because... Uh, he felt that they didn't cut it, you know, producers didn't cut it the way he had, I don't know if I should say this, but that, that the, the, the version that he wanted. And only, only in recent years, he'd gone to a fan fest, a number of them, and uh, saw the movie, saw the response, got the accolades from the from the crowd. And went, you know what? This movie touched people. And, you know, I've, I've come to look at it differently now. And so, and, and, and we've, we've, we've talked about it probably, you know, a couple times a year, we talk about Master Central High probably for the last five or seven years or something like that, maybe longer. So I mean, it's still a topic between us. And then, but he's he's an innovator in technology and all, all sorts of stuff. A very fascinating man. Is it true that Andrew Stevens broke your nose on set? It is true that Andrew Stevens did it. He didn't do it on purpose. Uh, we were we were shooting at it was a it was a community center, Jewish community center. We were standing poolside. We've got these lines, um, one of the two pieces dead, and uh, I guess I discovered it. Uh, I discovered it just jumped out of my skin or something, and like I'm going to go tell the vice principal. And, and, um, and, and yeah, and then and, and Harvey says, and to think yesterday was so full of life. And Andrew, somebody goes to to beat him up, I think maybe Andrew does or something, but anyway, he Andrew stepped back and he. He, I don't know how to describe it. He almost, he coke, you know what a cocoa butt is? I mean, when somebody like slams their forehead into somebody's forehead, he did that with the back of my head, but he hit me right in the bridge of the nose and literally crushed my nose. And, and, and I got real, I got knocked back like into the diving board. And, uh, and they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, if I don't bleed. And then, you know, blood is coming out of my nose. So the big cupcake stabbed me by my nose with a Kleenex and Peter Dial and leads me over to a chair by my nose and, and has me sit down. And one of the producers, I don't remember which one came up and said, do you have a history of bleeding? I just I, I read him, uh, uh, you know, the riot act. I just get away from me. I'll be fine. You know, why, why would you ask me if I said, well, because I do, I was just wondering, <laughs> actually, I'm trying to find out if you're okay. I didn't realize how bad my nose was broken. We did the movie in 76. I had it fixed in 79. I couldn't breathe for three years. It it had it literally crushed, pushed cartilage all. I mean, it just yeah. So I mean, I yeah, I didn't have a cosmetic surgery done, or I'd have a much better nose. I just had it fixed so that I could breathe. And um, 
but yeah, and and they had I realized at the time or thought about it at the time, there was workman's compensation. I mean, I could have had it paid for, and I, instead I paid for it myself later. But Andrew didn't, I don't think, I, 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 except after the fact, I mean, Andrew said, oh, I'm sorry, I mean, I don't, he didn't ever realize that, you know, that the damage was, and it certainly wasn't intentional. Going back to Rene, I know English isn't his first language, but from what I understand, he, he speaks it very, very well. Were there any translation problems as far as the script or anything? I don't know how he writes English. I don't know how many changes there were. I've got a script somewhere, and I haven't looked at it in years, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I have some. I don't know what changes there were made. For the, I mean, there were some that were made from the script version to what the actor said. I remember Damon going, I am not going to say that line. I don't care what, I, what you, I'm not going to say that. I don't know what the line was. He just he refused to say it how it was written. Um, he had lines like, okay, no more Mr. Nice Guy and things like that. There, I thought that I kept the dialogue completely pristine, but that at one point I, I found a script, and Daryl and I had actually gone over the scene where I'm trying to rock through um, what I forget the character's name. Bruce, Bruce is tall. I think Bruce is tall. I'm sorry. And we did make some dialogue changes, I guess. I don't think they were immense, but there were pencil notes in there. And, I, and then I went, oh, yeah, I remember Daryl and I were going over the dialogue for some reason. And so there are, there are some changes. I think, ultimately, that why Rod, Roger Ebert and so many people liked the movie was the English of it. Um, it, it occurred to me, as, an, as I got older, not when I was making the movie, but it occurred to me when I was older, that... When I was in high school, I felt like I was an adult. When I was in sixth grade, I felt like I was an adult. I never felt like a kid. And not that I, I, I mean, I always knew I was a kid, but we talked big. You know, we would play James Bond or we would play, you know, whatever the, the Cowboys kind of you know, heroes were. And, and so we would talk with what we thought was adult speak. And that's kind of how I, I, I've come to appreciate the script of Massacre is that this this language is written, and it's kind of a, a slice of time, and it's, and it's written by someone whose native tongue is the second, is, is not English, and it's got, like, colloquial phrases or whatever, I mean, that that, uh, that aren't necessarily in vogue, even when we were doing it. But that's, his, that's kind of its charm. We're all playing, like, adults. We're all playing... We're not really... And when you look at us, technically, we're all in college anyway. We're all like 23, playing, you know, 16 or 17. So um, we're, we're, it has this weird feel to it. It just has this weird fit. And um, it's too bad somebody didn't create a drinking game around, like, let's go to the beach, because every time there's a problem, they say, okay, let's go to the beach. Um, And and, and you you could, I suppose. (laughs) But... uh, but it has it has a charm to it, and then it has the the you know political uh, I guess maybe the word ramifications to the political underpinnings that uh, Ebert so loved about the abuse of power and the rise of the underdogs and, and, the, and the ability for governments to try and suppress people and things like that, and it, it all has this weird way of working, and I think that's why people like it, and people today, I mean. I mean, this is a B movie. This is not, you know, this is not a great A, you know, studio budgeted feature film that was, you know, written by Academy Award winning writers or anything. This, this is a B movie, you know, and it was it was written about 
you know, 13 kids in high school and, and like eight of them die or whatever the number is. And, um, and it was an exploitation film. And yet it has this wild, weird ass charm to it that people today, uh, get into. <laughs> I don't know why, but as long as they do, I'm pleased. I think it's great. Going back to my broken nose, you can see my broken nose in the movie. I mean, I'm standing around with like dark circles they tried to make up under my eyes and things like that. So, Have you been to any revival screenings of the film and seen it with an audience lately? I have not. Daryl went. I was going to go to the one that he went. I forget what. Something came up and I couldn't go. It was at the, I think the silent movie theater on Fairfax. And uh, and he had a marvelous time by all accounts, and uh, and I missed out. So no, I've not been to any of the revivals, and uh, I would love to. It would be fun. Tom and I went to a couple different showings of it when it opened, and uh, and people would rush up and ask for autographs and stuff. We didn't, we didn't realize that we'd be recognized, but we would. You know, we, it was nice. It was cool. Now certainly we wouldn't be, but uh, it would be nice to see it with an audience both young and old, meaning those who appreciated it from long ago and those who were seeing it for the first time. I think that would be a, a, a kick. That would be a hoot. Did the movie open any doors for you as far as uh, the next role? Yeah, absolutely not. It opened. It seemed to open doors for other people. I, I went nowhere from that one. I think I did, I did something for NBC after that. I mean, it's just the movies, but, but nobody seemed to care that I was in this movie. And my billing was was larger back then than it that it became later. I mean, I got I think I got moved down in the cast list, like on IMDb or or you know on the on the video box or something. But I think I remember somebody yelling out, "How did Sykes get a better billing?" I think Lonnie Grady yelled out, "How did Sykes get better billing than I did?" or something like that. And in the and when we went to the screening of it, but no, it didn't. It didn't really. And it, to this day, it hasn't. But but it's interesting that that people like yourself and others talk about it, I talk about it, and, you know, like so Renee and I talk about it, and uh, and uh, I, I come across some articles about it and stuff like that. A lot of times I'm not even in the articles. I mean, they focus on the, you know, they'll, they'll, they may refer to Rodney. Rodney's actually, according to Renee, Rodney was a very pivotal person in the thing. So it's, 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 it's one of those things where I play this pivotal piece because it's my car that's ruined, and that's how... David ends up injured, and then, and then he and I are buddies, and and yet he feels obligated to do what he did to others, to to me and the rest, you know, whatever. Um, but it didn't, it didn't, it, did, uh, it, it maybe I really sucked afterwards, you know. I mean, I go on auditions, and I just didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't book a lot of work off a of masker. I don't know that many people saw it, you know. It's just, I mean, the casting groups, I don't think they really even saw it. They. Uh, so it was just a, a movie on a on a piece of paper. You know, I had an interesting thing happen. Uh, a, a wonderful friend is a guy named Christopher Lockhart who works for William Morris. I did a thing called uh, Our Time with Robbie Desk and Glennis Connor and a bunch of people. And in my part, uh, I yelled at the producer and, and, and rather than fire me, they just go, well, we don't need him to do that anymore. So they kept me on for the entire shoot, but they kept cutting what I was to do down and down and down and down. I was, I was a written in part. I was the friend of George. There is no friend of George in the original art town. This was a television fabrication. And so I'd be, we'd be, he'd throw me the ball and say, okay, George, catch this. And I'm supposed to say a line or two or something. Like, well, he doesn't have to say that. It's a brilliant way to humiliate me for being a dick. Cause I, I had, and I got mad at this producer. I, did, I should know better. That's 
what agents are for, by the way. I mean, that's why you have an agent so they handle those things. Actors shouldn't actors shouldn't handle those things because one, we don't know how. Two, we create enemies when we should be creating friends, you know, by doing things like that. So, uh, so I did this piece, and it and it gets dwindled down, and, and it's obscure, and everything. And Chris and I are one night chatting on on Facebook long ago, many years ago, and he says uh, something, and I go, he says, "Hang on," and he comes back, and all of a sudden he posts into my Facebook chat or on my wall or something. This, this scene with Robbie Benson and I in this in this stuff. And I went, what God, how would you ever know that or find it? He was it's like one of my favorite T V shows. And you're in one of my favorite T V shows. And I'm like, oh God, how cool is that? And Chris's job is working with Denzel Washington, Richard Gere and all the top stars sense. <laughs> so I'm like, Well that's cool. I mean, you know, I, I guess I keep good company at a distance. Where's the best place for people to go and, and keep up with you? Well, they can go to RexSykes.com. That may change. It'll always point to something, but that may change. RexSykes.com is movie. Be think go there. I have um, uh, a number of Facebook pages. Uh, Rex Sykes. I've got a, a Rex Sykes movie beat on Facebook. I've got a filmmakers network on Facebook. I've got the Napoleon Hill and other thought leaders on Facebook at Daily Inspiration and Gratitude. Um, DailyInspirationAndGratitude.com. That's all one word. Um, that they can also get to me through that. I have the amazing Rex site, uh, the amazing Rex.com site, which is, uh, uh, I think all these things are going to be rolled into one eventually. I mean, I'm having somebody develop this, but the amazing Rex site is the mentalist mind reading site. And that's at, um, amazing Rex.com one word, amazing Rex.com. And then there's idea hyphen or idea dash seminars. Dot com, which is the personal development training, seminars, workshops, public speaking uh, site for me. So um, I think they can get most everything if they go to RexSykes.com. And it's S-I-K-E-S. Most people don't know how to spell my name. That's R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. How did you get into the business? Because it seems like you've been acting since you were pretty darn young. You heard of walk-ons? My first roles were crawl-ons. I was young. What inspired me originally was a couple of things. My father had trouble putting uh, myself and my two older brothers, we all shared a room, and he had trouble putting us to sleep because we'd stay up and fight or play or whatever. And he came up with this idea, and he had a lot of great material on uh, reel-to-reel on the old tapes they used to have back then. And he'd play, you know, Laurel and Hardy routines. He'd play symphonies. He'd play, you know, Peter and the Wolf. He'd, he'd play all, all types of music and, and routines for us to listen to, to. So we'd listen to that and fall asleep instead of talking all night long. And one night he put on Al Jolson. It was Al Jolson's great Decca recordings. I didn't go to sleep because I was just so amazed at that guy's voice. He, just something about it really got me. I was five, five or six years old. And of course, the next morning I'm singing Toot Toot Tootsie and Rosie and Rockabye and California. And I was imitating Jolson and my dad 
in order to help, I guess, um, channel this new energy I was, I was showing, he would take me to old folks' homes and, you know, re- retirement villages and hospitals and things. And he'd say, go in there and sing for them. <laughs> and I'd do Jolson, you know, as a kid. And I just loved it. And of course, you know, people, the older folks would, would also love it and make me feel terrific for being there. And that kind of got into, you know, as most performers, I think, when they hear applause, they go kind of nuts. Look at me. So that's pretty much how it started. And then there was a, there was a park near our house. And one afternoon, the family would go there for picnics often. And one afternoon, they were setting up for a parade. It was like a May Day parade. And, uh, I was bugging the guy who was doing all the, the prep work. And he was getting a kick out of me. I think I was again about seven, six or seven years old. He asked me if I wanted to be in the parade. And I said, well, what would I do? And he said, well, you could be a monkey. I said, a monkey? And he said, yeah, I've got a monkey outfit. And you go around and as the people are standing around the maypole and doing their thing, you go, you you know, you go around and play with people as a little monkey, hand flowers out and just tease people. I said, oh, okay, that sounds good. So we went and asked my parents and they met this gentleman and he said, yeah, just have him back here at five. And so I came back at five and he put me in this cool little monkey suit with a tail and the ears and the whole thing. And and, uh, I started playing with the crowd and I just had the time of my life. And that was it. My parent, my father was a theater arts professor at UCLA and uh, he, he ended his career after 43 years there. And he knew the business pretty well. He had, he had done some work on some older television shows and things and he wrote a lot, but, but he was this theater arts professor and he really didn't want me to, to get into this business unless it was something I really wanted to do. He just figured if I had a passion for it, then that's one thing. But and I guess his understanding of the business, he was a little leery, but also loved my energy and, and my enthusiasm for this. So he would kind of work with me on scenes and he would talk to me about, he was always showing all of our, the kids in the family, these great classic films. He'd, he'd say, Hey, Daryl, the, you know, Channel 11 movie has, uh, back here on the West Coast, they had the million dollar movie back in the sixties. And he'd say, uh, you know, go look at, and there would be the old man in the sea or the Bogart in Casablanca or, you know, some, cla- and I was watching these, you know, classic Jimmy Stewart films and the Westerns. And, and, uh, so I found a, a deep love for the, for the film. And then he said, you know, you want to talk about what you saw. And he started talking to me in terms of the craft itself, not just as a audience member, uh, freely going along with the, with the film and getting lost in it, but thinking about what it takes to put these things together. And that was intriguing to me. I fought it a little bit because I didn't want to stop being an audience member and <laughs> and being taken away with these great films. But um, that helped me understand again that it was more of a it was a business. And uh, I started reading hundreds of biographies and and uh, about the movie movie moguls and the, the creation of the studio system and that kind of thing. As a young kid, I think I was about 11 years old finally, and I auditioned for a production of a play called A Thousand Clowns by Herb Gardner. And in this production was Johnny Rubenstein, who couldn't have been more than 23, 24 years old. And uh, it, it was a terrific Jason Robards vehicle. And uh, I just fell in love with the play. And I auditioned for this, and I got the part. And uh, it was seen by a lot of a lot of prominent people. And I, we, reviews were sensational. My father had associations with uh, quite a lot of people in the business, but this kind of came on my own, so he was very proud. And uh, An agent, uh, many agents came to see it, but uh, I signed with the Mary Grady Agency when I was about 11, and I started going out on auditions, as you know, young actors do, and it took me about a year 
before I landed my first professional job, and then the rest it just took off from there. You were doing a ton of TV when you first started off. What were the jobs like back then? You would bounce from studio to studio, and for me, when I would go on an audition, after the audition was done, of course, my parents were taking me. I couldn't couldn't drive myself, of course. So, but uh, you know, they'd either come with me on the set or, or or to the audition or wait for me in the car. And as soon as my audition was done, I'd go roaming around the, the lot, and I'd walk into any soundstage and see what they were shooting, and I'd go find the. Uh, you know, the back lot, like the Universal has the great Psycho House. And this is back in the 60s. So there weren't there weren't these big tours and things going on like there are now. You know, at Paramount, I'd go on the like the Bonanza set and the Bonanza Western back lot. And any studio I could get my just go and play and get my jollies off. I would do. I just I'd have a ball. I'd spend the day, you know, as much time as I could get away with. And then come back to the car. Mom would say, well, they must have liked you. You were there forever. I said, well, the audition lasted 10 minutes, but I was I was playing. The other part of, of that is that you're meeting, you, you know, you're meeting a lot of casting directors and they all have their own way of doing things. And then when you're, when you actually, you know, get hired for a job, you're, for me, because I knew the history of these studios so well, you're walking in, you know, in, in these, in these classic arenas, these, these, these mammoth production facilities to, to make films that, you know, where, where Gable has walked and where, you know, Jimmy Cagney lived and, uh, you know, it, it for me, it was always a thrill to be on any any studio lot and then to work, you know, to be in front of a camera working in the same soundstage where, you know, Judy Garland was. It's a <laughs> pretty phenomenal feeling. It was nice that you were exposed to the older films so that you had this appreciation of this stuff. So you weren't just some punk kid coming in and, and doing your routine. I teach and I always I tell my students, you, you have to know where you where you're coming from to know where you're going. I'll mention as one of the old silent film stars, for instance, to one of my students, you know, a 12, 15 year old kid. And the, the, they'll say, who, who's Judy Garland? I wouldn't, I wouldn't blame them if they didn't know who Al Jolson was, but you know, not to know who Frank Sinatra is or Charlie Chaplin specifically, maybe, you know, you would think that these kids would know some of that and they don't, they really don't. They know Adam Sandler, <laughs> but they, you know, so I want them to know how, you know, we got to this point so that, you know, where we came from and all of that, any any kind of history, any prep work you do for anything, whatever your, whatever your vocation is, I think is a help. And when when I was a little kid, my dad would take the whole family to the silent movie house on Fairfax in Hollywood, and we'd see Buster Keaton films, we'd see Laurel and Hardy films, we'd see you know the Ben Hur and all these, these Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford and and because uh, my father had wonderful associations uh, with some of these people, he he did a series of interviews which are now on the Library of Congress where he would interview um, these great silent screen stars and he got to be friends with a lot of, a lot of them. And we would have these wonderful big Thanksgiving dinners and my father would invite students and ex students and faculty members and then people in the business as well as our neighbors. And we'd have 40, 50 people come to the house. Of course, uh, the four children, we'd play servants and serve everybody and fill up their glasses of water and make sure they had what they, but to what it was, we were always, thrilled, you know, around that time of year because we knew the house would fill up with these wonderful people. And I remember as a young boy sitting on Buster Keaton's lap, trying to make the great stone face lap, laugh. We, we went to Stan Laurel's house on the beach in Santa Monica. Uh, we were regulars at, at, uh, Harold Lloyd's house, especially around Christmas time. He had this enormous 50 foot tree in his living room and he'd hide presents for us and we'd swim in his swimming pool. And, you know, we knew, uh, Mary Pickford and in her later years and, uh, Everett G. Robinson was a, and 
John Lemoir was a very close friend of the family's, and uh, my dad and I one time re-roofed his house for him in Bel Air, and so we had these as we had these wonderful experiences with these incredibly talented and gifted, you know, uh, people in the arts. So I I agree with you. I was extremely lucky, extremely fortunate to have such a connection with them on so many levels, and you know, especially in a on a personal level. It's one thing to see the movies and be in awe, but you know, luckily I had. I had the opportunity to be in their presence and, and in a, in a more natural setting so that, you know, we got to know them as, as real people too. So I, and so I just, and I'm, I still to this day, I still get giddy when I walk on a set or when I go to uh, what now is Sony, but MGM studios or I go to Warner brothers, <clears throat> just knowing what took place there for me, it's a thrill. Now, what was that transition like for you from television into movies? I never had a big, a big breakout film that made me a household name. I didn't have a Dirty Harry or something like that. So, uh, you know, when, like a guy like Clint Eastwood was doing Rawhide and then becomes a big film star. Uh, I didn't have a transition to go through in that sense. Uh, mine was just as a working actor. I'm now playing this character in this part. And, oh, it's, it's not on the stage. It's in front of a camera for a film. Or, no, it's, now it's not on a TV show. It's, you know, it's a commercial. So I guess one of the differences is that there's a lot of prestige that comes with doing film i think for for people and it always i was always very proud and excited whenever i got a, a film role but basically as an actor i would just approach the character and i just happen to be in this venue today um what's fun about the film is you know on when sometimes you get you know you tell your friends you're going to be in a tv show and they can sit around a tv and watch it but you have to go to the movies and that's kind of an event so it was always fun to go with my friends and family to the movies. <laughs> you sit in the dark and watch you know, the lights go out and the, the projector starts and on comes your film. That's always a kick. That physical experience being in a movie theater and sharing that with strangers is wonderful. But as an actor, I don't think for me there was much difference in, in the process. For me, I basically study my, study my role and my character and what part of the story am I telling and then you know, whether it's stage, film, television, or, or radio, it's pretty much, you know, acting's acting. There's different techniques to it, but maybe that's the answer in terms of transition. You have to apply the different technique. But I don't know, other than like an emotional level, it's always wonderful to be in a film. And then, of course, you know, you hope for that big break, that big break, maybe through a feature or something. And, you know, that could, that can always take place. So it's always, there's a lot of optimism for me when I get a film. How did you come to be in Massacre at Central High? That was uh, basically the same way I would get any job. My agents would uh, call me up and say, I've got an audition for you on such and such a day. They'd give me the character breakdown. And in those days, because nothing was computered like it is today, nothing was, the techniques, the te technical situation was completely different. So in those days, you'd, you'd either go down to the studio or go to the casting office and pick up your, your sides, your scenes, like a day ahead of time kind of thing, um, if you could. So uh, it was probably one of the, I think it was, I don't remember going early to pick up my sides, but at any rate, my agent had called me and said, you've got this audition and told me about the character. And the character I was auditioning for was the character of Rodney. Rodney was a kind of a goofy oddball. And most of the work I'd been doing up, up to this time on, on, uh, in film and television was comedy. I did a lot of sitcom work and I had a ball doing it. And I was kind of a goofy, fun energetic kid. So it came easy for me and getting laughs was, was no problem. 
when I was auditioning for Rodney, to me, that was like rolling off a log. Again, it was like, this is right up my alley. And I remember coming to the uh, office in Hollywood to meet Renee Dalder, the director, who did the auditions himself. He was very, very nice. He said, uh, you know, how are you? I said, I'm good. I'm great. And I said, how are you? And he said, well, I've got 13 principal characters to cast in this thing. And I've only got about, a, you know, four or five days left to do it. I said, wow. I said, is there anything I can do to help you? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, how about if you take the script out there and read it and then suggest anybody you might know for any of the characters? And I said, sure, I'd be happy to. So he goes, well, let's let's read you first. So I read Rodney and he laughed at what I was doing and he enjoyed it. And he said, OK, thanks. Um, here's the script and uh, here's a piece of paper. Just write down anybody you think would fit some of these characters. So I'm reading the script and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know somebody who could play this. And oh, here's a great part for another friend of mine. And I'm filling in the blanks. And I don't know how much time went by. When I finished it up, I gave it to him and he thanked me and, and I left. And that evening, I got a phone call from him, from Rene, uh, asking me if I would be interested in playing David in his movie. And I couldn't remember who David was. <laughs> for some reason, I didn't connect it. Oh, David's the, the lead killer guy. I, I, and it was funny because I was trying to match people for these characters, thinking that I was really focusing for myself for Rodney. So I, I'm I was surprised I didn't really remember David's name, although there were a lot of characters I was juggling. But at any rate, I said, well, um, uh, which one's David? And he said, you know, the, the killer. I said, the lead guy? And he said, yeah. And it, it, it stumped me. I, I never had an offer like this before over the telephone, auditioning for a, like a, a smaller role as a goofball to play the lead killer just it threw me for a loop. And I, and I said to him, have you called my agent? And he said, no, I haven't called your agent. And I said, well, call her. And I hung up. About 10 minutes later, I got a phone call from Mary Grady and my agent. She said, Daryl, did you just hang up on the director of Massacre at Central High? I said, well, I I think I said goodbye. She goes, no, you hung up on him. She goes, call him right back. I go, well, what, what's he talking about? She goes, he wants you to play this this character and you know, he wants to talk to you about it. I said, okay. I, you know, now I have my agent kind of my her permission. I just it, the whole thing threw me for a loop. So I called Renee back and we talked for at length. And I said, "Why would you? What? What is it?" Yes, I'd love to play David. Absolutely. I said, "But I'll have to read that script again, and you know, really see what 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 it entails." But I, I'd love to. Thank you for the offer. But why me? And he said he thought that David was a mensch, and it was funny because he's you know he's from Holland. He asked me if I knew what a mensch was. I thought that was kind of cute. And I said, well, I, you know, it's a good deed doer and somebody gives him the heart and kind of a Jewish term. He says, yep, yep. He says, and that's, that's what David is. He's always willing to help everybody and the underdog. And he says, that's, that's the way you make me feel when you offered the, to help with the, um, with the casting for me. And that's what I want in this part. And I said, okay. He thought that this character in his guts and in his, in his daily existence was, a, a real good guy who would just help anybody, stranger or not. And he saw that in me, and even though the producers were asking for the big stars of the day to be in this film. They were interested in Mark Hamill. They were interested who had just been, you know, in Star Wars with such success. He, they were interested in Jan Michael Vincent, that kind of a, a guy, you know, which I'm, I certainly wasn't built like those guys or, or popular like, the, of course, with the money that they spent on Massacre, there's no way they could have gotten that type of talent. But that's the kind of look and feel they wanted, were hope, the producers were hopefully going for. And Renee thought, this is the guy that he has kind of the essence of what I want in this character. He just cast me in that role, and I and I accepted and asked him if he'd help me through it. 
and uh, ended up practically living at his rented Hollywood bungalow in the hills with he and his wife through the shoot to uh, kind of stay focused and to help me not be a goofball. Uh, we had we formed a, a wonderful friendship, and uh, and I had a blast. Did anybody that you recommend end up being in the movie? I think I recommended Steve Bond at one point. I recommended, I think, I think Steve, and I, I don't think it was because of me. I think Renee had already met with him. He was just somebody I put on the list. So I think that was the only, now Lonnie O'Grady, uh, her mother was Mary Grady, who was one of the biggest kids agents in town at the time and for years after. And Lonnie and I were, were close friends. I might have suggested Lonnie, but I don't remember if I did or not. Uh, it was quite a long time ago. I remember suggesting my brother Jason for a part who is not an actor, but I thought because he, he knew how to he knew how to dive, I thought he could put maybe play the uh, the Craig role. <laughs> he could jump off a diving board. So, Renee did all of the casting, and uh, I think I, I was uh, one of the things that the fans seem to enjoy a lot is that casting. They think that the characters are pretty much right on the money. I used to tease Renee. I'd say, well, the, with the exception of me, you did a fantastic job casting this thing. You know, all of the characters, I mean, I think Bobby Carradine was wonderful as Spoonie and uh, Dennis Court, you know, as the librarian and all of the characters. I thought even, uh, even you know, Rodney, from all of them, from the, from the top to bottom, I think he did a, a wonderful job kind of seeing the essence of the actor that walked in and saying, oh, this guy would be perfect for that role. You know, Bobby Carradine wanted to play my role desperately, pitched himself for it. And, and I remember uh, when we met on the set, uh, he told me that he said, you know, I wanted to play your role so bad, but I'm going to try to like you anyway. And we ended up becoming good friends. We went go-kart racing together, and uh, I'd spend time at a, up at his brother's house with him. And, and he was a terrific, fun guy, but he kind of was spoony. He was this free-spirited, 60s kind of kid, and I thought he was wonderful in the film, as was most everybody. Now, I tend to hear on certain movies where, like, if there are groups of characters, they'll kind of hang out together off-camera as well as on-camera. So... You know, was that kind of the same here? Did you have the bullies kind of pairing off and going off in one direction and the, the, the freaks going off in the other? Or was everybody pretty integrated once the cameras were off? I think we were all pretty integrated. Uh, I don't know that the any separation that might have taken place was uh, conducive to the characters we played. No, I can see where that, now that you, now that you, you put it that way, if, you know, these sometimes these method actors would, you know, they wouldn't, uh, mingle off camera with their uh, antagonists. So that I could see that would make sense. But we didn't, I, I, you know, we were just like, I'm not anything like David uh, at all. But um, so, you know, when the camera stopped, I'd go play with everybody. I think it was more of a, a social environment and we all pretty got along. You know, Bobby would always hang out with the girls and the girls would always want to hang out with Andrew. You know, I guess kind of the nerdier guys kind of hung together. Uh, they certainly related in their characters well and could talk offset or, you know, off camera about, you know, their involvement in the film and, that, and, and their relationship to each other and that type of thing. So there was some of that going on. But for the most part, we just all had fun putting this thriller together. It wasn't a lot of separation. What were some of the biggest challenges for you? I mean, it sounds like just tackling this character of David would have been enough uh, of a challenge. Yeah, for me specifically, personally, the challenge of playing this straight guy who's moody and uh, has this unfortunate accident take place, which kind of sends him in a different direction, justifying or finding finding the likability in this character and the and the anything in me that could relate to him um, and and make him come alive. 
it, it, for me, uh, it was easier to read a script that it was full of jokes and, and uh, punchlines and, you know, know my timing and, and know the face I could do to make, get a laugh here and that kind of thing. And with David, I, I guess I kind of figured that the, 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 the less I do, the better. And once I put, wrap my arms around that one, um, I, I got a little more comfortable. Um, I, I've, I've always been physical. I'm not a big guy. Uh, but when, with, because of having two older brothers and we fought all the time, my, my father, when I was about 10 or 11, I guess, put us in a stunt school, Paul Schrader's Main Street Gym in Santa Monica. And I, I loved being in the stunt school. I was, we were with all the professional stuntmen in, in Hollywood at the time, plus wrestlers, professional wrestlers and boxers. And we learned how to fight without killing each other, which was my dad's intention. And I had uh, a lot of training in uh, boxing and uh, martial arts and high falls. And pr- it was wonderful fun for me. And I always had a lot of confidence, confidence as a kid, even though I was very small growing up. Uh, I just had kind of a, I don't care attitude of, you know, who, who is coming down on me or who I'm looking at eye to eye. I never had a lot of fights as a kid, probably because <laughs> I was so, I was so, uh, you know, in your face. I'd also crack a lot of jokes. It's hard to want to beat somebody up who's making you laugh. But when I finished the stunt school, I, I had a, a, some pretty good training, a lot more confidence. So I felt like I could play this dangerous kid pretty well. Uh, I just had to, uh, my challenge really was finding a way that hopefully I would be, if I could believe it, you'd believe it. That was my, that was my theory. So I had to believe it myself. I had to believe myself in that, in that role. And that's another thing I'll tell my students. I'll say, you know, acting's not that tricky. If you believe what you're saying, the audience will believe it. If you're having a good time, they're having a good time. If you're sad, they're sad. The magic is bringing that out, finding a way to relate that to your characters you're playing in the scene with in a believable way that doesn't look forced and phony. But to get the audience to be behind you, you have to be behind yourself first. And, and that was, I guess my first, my first challenge was asking Renee, what, how do you, why did, why me? How do you see me in this and help guide me through what you know how how you want this film to look and feel and then me getting on board with it uh other challenges were the budget was so low that you know i remember one day i drove the grip truck off the lot which i probably could have could have gotten in trouble for but there were you know we were setting things up and tearing things down and you know helping a lot and i mean we we weren't suffering by any means we had a nice catering truck and that kind of thing but it was a very low budgeted film and there there's always a lot of challenges associated with that one of the things that I appreciate about the role of, of David or the way that you play David is that you just seem so very matter of fact when it comes to basically the, the deaths of the murders that are happening. It doesn't feel like you are getting any real pleasure out of it. First of all, I think that's the way it's written. There was never any description in, in text in the script where you see David gloating or, or proud of himself or... I think he thought, thought that this mission was the only way to solve this social problem. And it was just, a, it was more like a job for him to set things straight. It, there was certainly a, no ego involved. It wasn't to get the girl. It wasn't to, you know, get a big payoff of some kind. And so he was just doing what he thought was right. At one point, it was right after I had blown up the mountain and I'm, I'm looking at the destruction of Spoonie, Mary and Jane. And Renee said to me, I'm just going to roll the camera. You can do whatever you want here. And of course, I'm thinking of some of these classic Evergy Robinson moments, you know, where he was this manic killer. I'm thinking of Richard Widmark pushing the you know, lady down the stairs and, you know, his 
his reaction. I'm thinking, God, I can go broke here. I can do whatever. And what I ended up doing was as little as possible. I just kind of looked at the situation and thought, okay, another, you know, mission accomplished. And, uh, I kind of decided not to do anything. I, I, I don't know that I made the right choice. It might have been cool to show David in a different mental state at one point where you saw that he, the guy's a little crazy or something's wrong with this guy, you know, and I, I, if I had given it some, some thought, I might have come up with something different. But my immediate instinct was, well, every other kill has been just pretty matter of fact and pretty on the nose. And this is what I need to do. And I just didn't think laughing or, or smirking or going some other direction emotionally was would fit. It, I thought it might be out of place. So I left it alone. And uh, and that's I guess that helped what you what you pointed out as being this matter of fact way of taking care of business. Was there any sort of backstory or more backstory between David and Mark and what had happened before the film starts? We have a glimpse of that in the credit, I guess the opening credits. You see David running on the beach and that type of thing. And then there's this silhouetted shot in a tunnel. And it's very difficult to really make out what's going on. If it had been either lit better or extended, I think it would have made possibly more sense. Later, there's dialogue that, uh, you know, hi, this is my old friend, David. We went to, you know, a, a different school together. So you know that we knew each other. But in this tunnel, the Andrew Stevens character, Mark, is actually jumped by a few guys. And I come into the tunnel and beat them up and take Mark out of there. And that starts our friendship. And in this, probably like a junior high is my, is my guess. Or maybe it was a previous high school. But we had, we did have this previous association where we were, uh, friends, in a, in a similar way that I become friends with some of those other characters because, you know, I, I came to the rescue and it was, it, it started a friendship. I think with the character of Mark, we really like each other as buds where I wouldn't have hung out with Harvey after I helped him through his problem or, or Rodney. You know, they weren't, I mean, I hung out with them, but mostly with, from their, their insistence or their, you know, they're coming, coming to me. But I think Mark and David really enjoyed, liked each other's company. They probably related on many more levels. You know, whether it was girls or, or their, their intellect or their social and background and that type of thing. So in the film, there's this little glimpse in this, in this dark tunnel that, that we did have this prior association. You mentioned those opening credits. And, um, from what I understand, you've actually heard the music that was supposed to be in the film rather than that crossroads of your life song. Can you tell me <laughs> what was that like? Renee was like the Quincy Jones of Europe uh, as a record producer before he came to the States to make films. Brilliant, brilliant guy, engineer and musician himself. And uh, he had friends uh, that were here in the States and he got them together and he had written or had collaborated with these friends this fantastic piece of music. It was called David's Theme. And I remember that it had the same kind of effect as, I don't know if you remember the theme from The Exorcist. It had this, the, the David's theme had this haunting, uh, unforgettable melody to it. But it was also mixed with what Rene was famous for, this kind of jazz, avant-garde, uh, new, new feeling sound that he had put together. And it was unique, but it was, it was just, Riveting, and it, it, it like crept into you, and it would, you'd hear that when it would, start, when the music would circle around back to the that the, that the original theme, it was this this haunting, eerie, but different feeling and sound that that was just 
unforgettable. And I remember the first time I heard it, he called it David's theme, and I was just on cloud nine that this was going to be the music to run through the film because I thought it elevated the film as a lot of movie scores do. Um, and I was, I couldn't have been more excited. When Harold Sobel, the producer, heard the music, he insisted on seeing charts, and I don't know that there were any. Uh, and if, if, even if there were, I know it was an insult to Renee. What do you mean charts? This is the song. This is the music. It, it's, you know, gorgeous. So what, what else do you need? And I think Harold Sobel was using any excuse to hire a friend of his who happened to be Kimberly Beck's father, Tommy Leonetti, to do the music. And he did, I think, an adequate job for maybe a TV film or a TV series like Mannix, uh, kind of a thing. It had a, a nice, generic melody to it but it certainly it's because i heard the other music it to me it was it was a complete disappointment and uh, upset as was renee that uh his music wasn't even going to be considered to be in the film and uh, it was very disappointing i wish i wish his i think renee might have read i don't know maybe that maybe i heard this from from uh rex sykes one time a long time ago that renee put together a version with his own music in it and i thought well that's the way to go uh, Crossroads of Your Life is is catchy and it's it's you know I mean I can't help but laugh uncomfortably every time I hear it. I know some other people feel the same way and for whatever their own reasons are, but for me because I knew what was possible and what didn't end up in the film, it's uh, very discouraging. And not to take anything away from what Tommy Lee meant, what what uh, he what he wrote and what finally became our our theme song, but you know I think it's very Pretty elementary and uh, and pretty generic. You're at the crossroads of your life. <clears throat> My girlfriend sings it to me every once in a while, and we we just have a big laugh. Again, I heard what Renee wrote, and boy, I, I just wish the rest of the world could have heard it as well. Great stuff. When the movie was over and 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 you're wrapped on this, <laughs> did it get a big release or what happened afterwards? Yeah, it did. It got a pretty good release. It played uh, in Hollywood. Uh, so for me, locally, I don't know what it did around the country. But uh, it played at the uh, Pacific Theater, which was a nice big theater here in, in on Hollywood Boulevard. And it played for, gosh, over a month. It had this long run, which I enjoyed. I took, I would, <laughs> I would take all my friends and family and I'd, I'd walk up and ask for the manager and I'd say, do the people that work in your theater get to see your films for free? And he'd say, oh, sure, you know, if, you're a, if you work at the concession stand or you take tickets, yeah, you know, if you work here. And I said, well, I'm working for you today. I'm starring in this movie. Can my friends come in? And I, I would do that every time I go. I had a ball. I, I and it did. It seemed to run uh, quite well. I know that uh, Sis, Siskel and uh, Ebert gave it three thumbs up, which helped. It, you know, it's uh, it's kind of a what what people, some people might, might classify a B film, mostly because of the the um, production uh, value or the the lack of money involved with it. It certainly wasn't a B film in its in its content. Um, you know, people think that I think the reason one of the reasons that the film is still popular and people seem to want to talk to me about it or the other cast members about it is because it, the, it was written so well and it's got such uh, an interesting take on, you know, how to, how to kill 13 people and, and get away with it. Uh, that was, was pretty much the way Rene was, was hired. He, he was told by, by Sobel and his troupe, we just want a movie with like 10, a minimum of 10 killings, write me a script. And Rene came up with this, what I think is a pretty brilliant concept. And so it did. It played for quite a while, and my friends and family came. And one time I was sitting in the audience, and the lights came up after the film was over, and the people started to get out of their seats. And I'm looking at this guy, and 
my eyes just popped and my mouth dropped and he turned and looked at me and his eyes popped and his mouth dropped and, and, uh, he ran over and he said, Oh my God, it's you. And I said, my God, it's you. It was, it was Andy Kaufman. And, and at that, that time he was becoming popular doing his mighty mouse and his, you know, Saturday night live appearances and things. And I think it was prior to taxi, but he was just, he was up and coming and I was crazy about him. I thought he was wonderful. And I said, what do you, why would you come see a film like this? He said, oh, this is where I get my characters. You know, I love to watch these movies and find idiosyncrasies and, and, uh, you know, little things that people do and put them into characters that I create. So I thought, isn't that wonderful? We talked for a little while. So I never knew who was going to be at, you know, at one screening to the next, but I was really glad that it lasted in town for a while. And then, uh, then it disappeared and it would come back every, I don't know, every year or so you'd see it at a revival house, you know, years, years down the line. And, uh, I think I think the the DVD was late in coming, and I don't even think that there is a a real sanctioned DVD that I'm aware of. At one point, there was talk of Renee and I being on the a new DVD version with uh, doing commentary, and I think that still might be in the works. I haven't heard anything about it in a while, but I would certainly love to take part in that if that happens. Oh, that would be great. I mean, it seems like this was such a uh, uh, an important film for you. And I mean, gosh, it's your first starring role in a, in a movie where you're... I'd done some some other films, and, and I always had a fun, but again, like I said, like they were the kind of thing I was used to doing, the Disney movies and, you know, The Strongest Man in the World and uh, things like that, where where this, this film was a complete thrill for me. And uh, aside from just... Uh, having a larger role in a, in a property like this, the relationship I developed with Renee, uh, is the kind of thing I always look forward to when I'm working on a show, not just with the actors, but with the crew and the production people and your director specifically, to have a real friendship grow from the film experience as well was more, as much, more than I could ask for. I was thrilled about that. Have you lived with many other directors that you've been working with? I've gotten close to, to many other, but I've never like lived, you know, like, like slept at their house and, and really, you know, had breakfast every morning and worked till late hours of the night and went home. I mean, Renee would write and write and keep write and writing and rewrite. And, you know, he'd ask for some input, but mostly he would just, he was so focused and he was so, he just was such a, a driven creator. Uh, it was, for me, it was wonderful to watch him in his process and, and the commitment he had to the project. I was just glad to be a part of it. This must have been interesting for him, too, because this was, I know he had done a, a lot of stuff, especially uh, back in the Netherlands and everything, but this seems like it was his real chance for this breakout here in the U.S. I think it was. And uh, I, I know he had a lot of uh, resistance with the, uh, with the, from the producers, and I think he did a, a, an extremely uh, competent and uh, not just adequate, but a, an exceptional job with what he had to work with. Whether it was being told we can't use your music or, you know, I don't want this guy in the film or, uh, you know, this location is not available to you or, you know, this, this is the camera you're getting. And, you know, <laughs> every time he turned around, there was another challenge for him and he found a way to get around it and, uh, pulled it off. And I, I couldn't have been more impressed. And I, so I think you're absolutely right. I think this was like a new, and of course he, he took this, this opportunity and just built, you know, a magnificent career following it. And I'm sure Massacre was part of the springboard for that. You talked about um, going to the theater and seeing yourself or seeing the film many times. What was that experience like seeing yourself projected up on this big screen? Well, the first time, it's frightening as hell. It's, it's just you're a nervous wreck. And having not seen the film, and then, of course, with my own, I hope I pulled this off. You know, I hope I don't look too, I hope, I, I hope this works. 
you know, I, I'm, I was frightened as frightened as I could be just the first, the first few times, I guess I saw the thing. And then it takes, you know, of course you're just focused, focused mainly on all of your flaws. You just, you know, can't, you can just, but yeah, I just had so much fun. It was so different from what I've been doing. And, uh, I, I did seem to fit in it. it you know, everybody, I thought everybody did a, a great job. It was, it was always made me laugh. It always made me, you know, a little excited, like what's going to happen next again, because of the budget restraints, I think some of the, some of the special effects that were not laughable, but just that were, uh, maybe under par, they worked, you know, and you just had to, you had to watch the movie in, in just what it's, what it's, uh, it's genre and it's, and it's, uh, level of, of, uh, expertise and, and finances would allow it to be to enjoy it. My, my brother would pick on it because, you know, we, we grew up watching these classic films and a classic film is everybody doing top notch, notch work in every department. And, you know, so you, you start to appreciate production value. And he would have trouble watching a movie like Massacre or uh, and a lot of, a lot of the other types of films, you know, like the, uh, uh, some of those movies we grew up on as kids, like, uh, you know, um, what was that one from Mars that was so funny or the 50 foot woman, you know, those, those type of movies, the, the atomic woman or, um, invaders from Mars is what I was saying, you know, or the Aladdin movies, those old Harry Housen movies, although those special effects were magnificent, but some of those films, that, that fall under a, a different financial level. Look at, and, uh, I'm sure there were some people who, who would pick on that or, or not be as thrilled about that type of thing, especially today. You know, you've got so many special effects and CGI and all this is so, um, uh, advanced and the, the level of, of, uh, the quality is, is really magnificent work. And, uh, I mean, look at the difference between Dino De Laurentiis's King Kong and, um, Jackson's King Kong. I mean, it's like night and day. So, um, for me, uh, watching Massacre went from frightened and, uh, uh a little terrified <laughs> to just pure enjoyment and then being so happy to be able to bring friends and, and just see it. It was, it was fun. My reviews didn't kill me. Nobody tore me apart. It didn't change my life as an actor. It didn't, I didn't have some breakout role that everybody ran to and said, Oh, this kid, this kid, you got to see this kid. I got more attention probably from a lot of the TV series that I would do, whether it was happy days or one day at a time where my characters were memorable and people would recommend, recognize me on the street from seeing me on television in a, in a regular role. But for me, massacre was a, I thought it was just a blast to watch and be a part of and to enjoy watching. Now, did you ever see the uh, Italian version, I did. Uh, Sexy Jeans? <laughs> I did. My brother found it and sent it to me. And a couple of things were interesting about that. First of all, I found that I speak Italian really well. And the other thing is that uh, in that particular X-rated version, I'm well hung. It was a, a funny film to watch. Apparently, they took the original massacre at Central High, and then they would <clears throat> costume these Italian actors for the sex shots. And you, you like, you'd see the the back of me and somebody would be wearing wardrobe that looked like what I was wearing in the scene in the scene. And they would just intercut these Italian actors in and then the clothes would come off and people would be you know, doing their thing. And <clears throat> I just thought it was the funniest thing I ever saw. I haven't shown it to my mother, but I told her about it.
Hey, folks, we have a bonus interview coming to you with Jeffrey Winner, who played Oscar. So let's go ahead and play that. Oh, and while I've got your attention, I also want to thank Casey Scott on this episode for giving us the uh, 45 version of Crossroads of Your Life. Thank goodness that he had that in his archives and was able to share that particular song with you because uh, it's oh so special. Now, with no further ado, let's go ahead and play the interview with Jeffrey Winner. How did you get into acting? Through uh, my high school uh, work. Suddenly, I did my first musical when I was 15 in ninth grade, and the bug bit me. I've been doing it ever since. And uh, it, it became clear when I was in high school uh, and some of the uh, workshops I took in the summer that I had the ability, and I just uh, kept on. I was one of 15 people picked when I was in my senior year to... Uh, trained with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art faculty and staff, which was moving to the United States and opened the school in Michigan at Oakland University, so it was perfect for me. And uh, I trained for two years. It was the exact RADA course, two years, ten weeks uh, per term, three terms. And the structure was exactly the same. And it was remarkable. I worked with uh, some of the same people who trained Peter O'Toole, Albert Finney, Alan Bates, Tom Courtney, Terrence Stamp, Glenda Jackson, the list goes on and on. And the stories they told me about <laughs> some of these people. That was, it was a great experience. When did you decide to make the move out to Los Angeles? I started off with Meadowbrook Theater in Michigan. Worked there a couple of seasons, including when I was in my last year of acting school. And then I moved to New York and was pursuing theater. I did some regional theater while I was there. Then I was cast in the original National Company of Godspell in 1972, which was the big hit show at the time. Uh, and I toured for a year, 185 cities, we were 43 states. It was insane. And the final performance was at the Greek Theater in Los Angeles. There were a lot of agents in the audience, and I was offered a contract with an agent, and I decided go with the flow. So I decided to stay here in Los Angeles and started doing commercials and television and film, and the audition for Massacre at Central High came up, and the rest is history, as they say. What was your experience with uh, working on Massacre at Central High? It was terrific. It was a four-week shoot. I worked three out of the four weeks. I was one of the, as you know, supporting cast members. And it it was just a lot of fun. All of us uh, got along very well together. I still maintain contact with my friends Rex Sykes and Tom Logan. It was just really uh, a lot of fun, which you hope work is always going to be, not always, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Renee Dalder, writer-director, was really terrific to work with, and it was just very, very interesting. Now, this was your first film shoot, correct? Correct. I had been doing television and, and episodic and commercials up to that point. It must have been a little bit of a different world for you to enter with that. Yes, it was. But having done enough episodic and many commercials up to that point, I was used to my way around a set. What was interesting was when Renee auditioned me, he had me read another role. I think it was Rodney. I'm not sure. But I I read that role for him. And then he said... um, Show me, show me how you would climb a rope if you were in gym class. And so I did that, and he liked that. He laughed. Uh, and then he called me back, as I recall, had me do some more nonverbal 
auditions. And then he said, take your shirt off, which I did. And he, he looked at me and said, you're so skinny. And I didn't know what he was referring to. He then called me back a final time while the uh, opening party was going on in the next room. Everybody had been cast. And I was sitting there along with another actor who was quite heavy, quite large. And he walked out of the party. Both of us were sitting in the uh, reception area. And he just turned to this other kid. He said, you know, you look, you look too old. And I'm sorry. The kid was gracious. He nodded and left. And he just turned to me and went, no, I didn't think he looked too old. I just thought he looked better. So then he took me into the party and introduced me to the rest of the cast that was standing there. That's that's how I got the role. It was very last minute. I was the last person cast in the club. What was it like on set as far as working with uh, such a, a great ensemble cast? It was wonderful. Everybody was, was very good. Everybody was very loose. They were willing to improvise and, and change lines if, if the uh, case called for it. What's very interesting, and I have to tell you that after I was cast in it, he asked me, how much weight can you gain? for the role. And I said, well, how many how many weeks do I have? He said, you have two weeks to gain the weight. I said, well, I'm sure I could do at least 20 pounds. He said, that'll be great. So I showed up my first day, and he looked at me with this big gut, and he went, thank you, you're very, very professional. And of course, film being what it is, having to shoot out of sequence most of the time, my very first day on the set was the death scene where the locker blows up. That was my first scene, working backwards. And what's very interesting about that particular scene, see close up with my hand on the locker. I pulled the handle and then we cut. And then our stuntman, Danny, was hooked up to a, a halter underneath his shirt with a wire coming out the back. The idea was when the locker blew, and what they did was they put up a couple of mock lockers in front of an open classroom with kegs of this powder that they had pumped up to blow when the, the locker exploded. And again, the idea was when the powder blew, someone off camera was going to pull Danny with the wire for the the effect of him being blown across the hallway, except they had overloaded and overpumped the powder kegs. It not only blew, but it knocked the lights over, knocked the camera over, and we were in total darkness and chaos for about a minute, and everybody was screaming, Danny, Danny, you okay, okay? And finally he went, yeah, I didn't want to say anything. Did you cut? He was just laying there like the pro he was waiting to, uh, to hear somebody say that the scene was completed. So it was just total chaos. It looks great on screen, but we didn't get the effect of the actual pulling of the wire. Yeah, it does look really good. It looks very convincing. Like uh, I was uh, wondering if anybody got hurt in that, uh, so I'm glad nobody did. No, nobody did. Nobody did, even with the lights and the cameras falling. So very lucky. What was Renee like as a director? He was great. He was very open to ideas. There were some people in the cast who would talk to him about maybe changing a line because they felt it was a little too stiff or wooden. And being uh, from Holland, Renee sometimes would, would write stiff dialogue. So he was very open to the idea of people loosening it up and letting them say what they wanted, getting the gist at the same time. Um, and as far as I was concerned... He um, he was very open with me. There was the uh, the shower scene where I come out of the shower and they start whipping me and bullying me and, and pushing me around. We did the first take and there was a technical problem with the sound, so we had to stop. 
And I walked over to Renee. I said, you know what would be the ultimate in degradation if, in addition to beating me with their towels, if they would rip my towel off and beat me with my own towel? And he said, he said, that's a great idea. And if I was shooting this film in Europe, I would, I would definitely take you up on it, but we can't do that. We can't show frontal male nudity. Female, fine in your country, not, not, but not male nudities. And again, if I was shooting this anywhere but the United States, I would take you up on it immediately. Did the movie open any doors for you? Yes and no. I did. My manager at the time was able to get me, uh, more work, more auditions, mainly in, in television. But yeah, definitely, definitely, I uh, I was recognized by people who saw the film. And it was very interesting because a lot of us went to the opening at the old Pacific Theater in Hollywood. It was on a double bill with Assault on Precinct 13, John Carpenter's first film, which is very interesting. But it was a lot of fun because we went Together, about six of us, I believe. Myself, of course, Tom Logan, uh, Rex was there, Ray Underwood, uh, two of the actresses in the cast, Rainbow Smith and uh, Lonnie O'Grady. And it was just so much fun because when the house lights came up after the film, we're trooping up the aisle. Everybody's looking at us and then looking back at the screen. <laughs> they were just really knocked out. But uh, that was a lot of fun, too, getting together with the cast. When it comes to the the atmosphere on set, you were saying that some people were more into wanting to change the dialogue. Other people were absolutely fine with going with with Renee's original vision. Was there any sort of contention as far as uh, the act actors themselves, or, or was it uh, did everybody get along fairly well? We all got along well. There were some people, as I recall, I wasn't in the particular scene, but I had heard that some of the actors tended to stand their ground when they really felt that. They needed to change the line. They didn't care for it. But there was no, there was no you know, heated uh, tension, no real uh, argument. Some actors were more adamant than others. Let me put it that way. I'm curious. Have you ever seen the uh, Italian version, Sexy Gene? No, but I've seen the poster. It's hilarious. I did hear, uh, speaking of other countries, that there was one particular theater in Paris, I believe, where it showed for a year. From what I understand, so that's really amazing. Well, it's so nice that you guys have remained friends since 1975, 76, when this came out. That's the best thing uh, uh, that came out of it for me were, were the friendships. Daryl, I see occasionally. In fact, we had a mini reunion at a restaurant a few years ago. It was Renee, uh, Daryl, and uh, Rex, uh, Peter, who was head of makeup, and I hadn't seen these people close to 40 years, so it was just great to get together with him. I hadn't seen Renee since we wrapped and went to the rap party. That was the last time I saw him was at the party. And it was just great to see them all again. So Rex tells me that you have a funny story about working on Forrest Gump. Yeah, I, I know what story that is. I worked on Forrest Gump. It was a long shoot. A small scene, but a long shoot. It took almost 11 to 12 hours to do. Because when you're doing a scene like a nightclub scene, there's so much coverage. You have my shots and then over the shoulder shots and then shots of the nightclub, shots of, of Robin Wright on stage and, and you know, Tom coming down the aisle. So it took a long time. What was funny was I got on set and Bob Zemeckis, the director, said, okay, so what we're going to be doing here 
you're going to be harassing Robin on stage, you know, flicking a dollar bill, and she's going to take this uh, to become really insulted. She's going to uh, take her foot and push you back into your seat when she finally can't take anymore. That's when you pick up your glass of beer and throw it at her. Said, so hey, don't even give face, aim for her knee. So we don't have to be making her up after every take, which makes sense. But he said what's going to happen then is that Tom's going to run down the aisle and he's going to shove you across three seats. And he's really going to shove you. He said, okay, could I see that done? Which is what you always do. And he said, sure. So he brought out his stunt coordinator, pushed the stunt coordinator, coordinator flew across the the seats. um, And the stuntman really pushed him hard. I said, okay, I can handle that. So we started, take one, do the whole scene, throw the beer. Tom runs down the aisle and pushed me very tentatively. And Bob uh, yelled, cut. And the stunt coordinator came over and said, look, Tom was afraid of hurting you. So I, uh, so I told him, don't worry about it. You know, I, because I had rehearsed after the coordinator and the stunt manager told me how it was done. And I said, don't worry. Jeffrey knows how to take the fall. So be prepared because on the second take, he's going to be shoving the hell out of you. I said, okay, let's do it. So I'm on the seat with some of the other patrons in the nightclub scene, and it was up on a platform. And when Bob yelled action, Tom ran down, pushed me so hard that he hooked it. It was like a golf shot. He didn't shove me straight across. He hooked it. And I fell back into my seat, in my seat, fell off the platform, still in my seat. The scene continued. Tom gets on my stage and goes, Jenny, what are you doing in a place like this? He says, oh, Forrest, leave me alone. And they all run off stage. That's the end of the scene. Bob yelled, cut. He, everybody looks down at me. I'm still on the floor. And my boss says, Jeffrey, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine, Bob. I noticed you didn't stop filming. <laughs> everybody just cracked. Tom was like, ha, ha, ha. It was a lot of fun. So, and I'm telling you, I really respect coordinators and stunt people because I woke up the next day and I had, some cuts and bruises on my right rib cage. I've been doing it. All, I've been doing it all day. What are you working on these days? Not really doing a whole lot. Um, so I get called in occasionally. I had retired. I have uh, my Social Security and my Actors Equity pension from New York. My side pension from uh, here in LA. I still work from time to time. I'm just not as active with auditions. Um, friend of mine is a producer. He's he's hoping to. Uh, finance a film that a friend of his wrote and directed, uh, Bill Reichert, who wrote and directed the now infamous cult film Winter Kills. And they've managed to get Jeff Bridges interested uh, in it. And if that happens, then I would be in it because I met with, with Bill and it would be shot, I think, in Oregon. So that's what I do. I, I keep in contact with people and uh, things come up from time to time. All right, we are back, and we were talking about Massacre at Central High. So along with uh, the aforementioned actors who we talked to, I also tried to get the director. Unfortunately, no response from him. Yeah, thank you, Heather, for trying to reach out and, and set that thing up. But um, 
it just wasn't happening. Hey, all we can do is try in this life. And I don't know, hopefully, who knows, you know, maybe maybe Renee will hear this episode and love it. And so if we do another one of his films in the future. Well, yeah, because he's liked what you've written about him in the past. Uh, yeah, actually, um, I, I it was through a conduit, but I actually did get a really nice message from him uh, when I, I wrote about Population One uh, back when I was writing for Video Watchdog. I got a very nice message from him about the review. He really liked it. And um, and it's such a great film. I definitely recommend it. It's very, very different from Massacre at Central High, which is very cool. And it has an insane cast, members of the Screamers, uh, Beck, when he was 12, is in it, um, his, fa- his father, Al Hansen, the famous Flexus artist. Um, El Duce from The Mentors, Vampira. Carl Stricken. I'm probably mis- mispronouncing his name, but he's great. <laughs> the giant from Twin yes, Peaks. Yes, <laughs> it's just happening again. So Population One is very, very highly recommended. So Dalder's a fascinating, I mean, as a whole, he's just a really fascinating, brilliant guy. And this this film is proof of it. The fact that his other work is so vastly different, but equally really notable, I think just makes him all the more intriguing. So if you hear this, sir, <laughs> please, please come back to us at some point. From what I understand, um, Massacre at Central High will be getting the synapse treatment. I mean, that's what I've read in the synapse uh, catalog is that they're working on a director's approved transfer of Massacre at Central High. So hopefully that will happen because this was really tough. Heather, you mentioned in the intro how hard it was to see Massacre at Central High for a long time. And even today, I mean, I guess you can go out and watch it on uh, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. It's a, a standard definition version. But for a long time, this was a really tough movie to see yeah and i mean and i mean ridiculously so and i mean it actually did have like a chance to be a little more accessible back in 09 because it was originally scheduled for uh turner classic movies underground slot that they did like tcm underground and it got pulled because it was viewed as too violent which is interesting because i'm pretty sure they've had hg lewis films i love herschel gordon lewis and i love turner classic movies as a whole they do phenomenal work they're you know it's a wonderful wonderful channel and service but um you know, I don't know if maybe perhaps just the stigma of school violence has scared off some people. I mean, I think at this point we're past that, at least with the Blue and D- Blu-ray and DVD release. But um, but certainly in the past, it seems to have hurt it. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it, people get so crazy about high school violence and everything that it's just like, let's not even look at the problem or what has happened in the past. It just seems like let's kind of put it under the rug and just hope that everything turns out okay. But I mean, well, I won't say movies like Elephant because I thought that was a piece of garbage, but movies like Over the Edge and this one, I mean, they're doing some terrific things looking at the problems of high school violence and, and what what it might stem from and possibly some solutions. I mean, I think there's better solutions than what David comes up with, which is to basically wipe out the school. But... I find these type of films fascinating. You know, there's a movie called Duck, the Carbine High Massacre, which came out just a few months after the Columbine Massacre, uh, directed by William Hellfire. And uh, we covered it on No Budget Nightmares years ago at this point. But it's a movie that is – it's very dark, very bad taste. I mean a movie made that soon after it is probably going to get labeled that no matter what. But it's a movie that has a very sympathetic 
position towards the bullied and and the creeps, so to speak. And and I think you're exactly right, Mike, that there's real value in these kind of movies. And to kind of hide them away is doing a disservice to both the incidents, which inspire some of them, but also to the, the maturity of the crowd. I mean, if you're watching Turner Classic movies late night in order to see Massacre at Central High, you're mature enough to experience it and understand it. I would say that actually uh, Uwe Boll's uh, Rampage film is a really good look at violence and where that kind of comes from. And I think that he handled it in a very intelligent way. I mean, a lot of people don't see Uwe Boll as being an intelligent filmmaker, but you know, we've talked about Auschwitz on here and he's done some terrific work. And I think that that is definitely one of those when, when it comes to looking at the problem of violence and looking at, you know, possibly some of the solutions, but really more than looking at more than solutions. I think just these movies opening up a dialogue about the problems of these things and especially about bullied kids and, and, you know, the social disparity and, and just, I mean, really when it comes to something like over the edge, which we'll be talking about in 2017, the whole idea of that is basically kids not having fuck all to do and just needing some sort of an outlet. I mean, David, to, to this film's point, David had his jogging, and when he didn't have that anymore, he had no outlet. And it's just like, okay, you know, most of the time people don't turn to violence for that, but it can happen. And it's just like, you know, if you don't have any sort of activities or anything that you're going to do, there's a lot of hours in the day, especially for like latchkey kids, where it's just like, hey, let's get into trouble. So what you're saying, Mike, is you like Pokemon Go? Just keep playing it. That's fine. Go get that Pikachu. That's absolutely spot on, Mike, because I think, you know, that's why I really appreciated this film. There's a lot of reasons why I appreciated it. But the fact that it examined the situation with intelligence, because, you know, the thing, you know, and this isn't really explicitly addressed here, but these bullies didn't just come overnight and nobody's born evil. I mean, you don't have little asshole babies. Well, some babies are kind of cranky, but, you know, (laughs) like most, you know, but what, how do people develop into that? And that's because nobody steps in early on. And stops it. If anything, it's like, oh, well, he's, you know, oh, no, he comes from a good family or she comes from a good family or, oh, they're really popular or he's a great athlete or she's the prom prince. You know, it's like people automatically get kind of like get out of jail free passes in certain, you know, there's like a social strata with it. I like how they abandon the the kind of class system aspect of it. Like there's a suggestion that all of the bullies in this movie are all pretty well off. And that's one of the reasons that they were able to become bullies. But when when the creeps rise up in the ranks, you know, they come from a mixture of different backgrounds. And the suggestion is, you know, you don't have to be rich to be a piece of shit. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, Rodney seems to be under, you know, some socioeconomic uh, difficulties with the kind of piece of shit car that he's driving around. But it, it's like the same kind of car that I had when I was a kid. It's like, it gets me from point A to point B. I don't really care what it looks like, but then they rob him even of that. They, they rob him of his ability to get around and to get to work, to get to school, all these kind of things. But I like that they, uh, take the parents out of the equation. I mean, we have these mentions, you know, Rodney mentions at one point when he has Bruce's car, he's just like, oh, uh, Bruce's parents didn't want this kind of as a reminder and everything, but we don't see the parents, you know, and just taking them out of the equation, I think is great because 
to your point earlier, the whole thing is like, well, where are the parents? What's going on with them? Of course, this is all about their home life. You know, why, why is Bender, was it Bender, the, the, the Judd Nelson character? Why was he such an asshole? Oh, because his dad burns him with cigarettes for, for dropping paint in the garage, you know, but we don't have any of that kind of stuff here. We don't get the home life. And I really kind of appreciate that it's more just dealing with these kids when they're at school rather than looking, you know, pulling out the, the whole life and looking at every single facet of it. I just want to see the facet of what these kids are like when they're at school, because as a, another kid at school, that's the only thing that matters. I don't care if these kids go home and get, get the shit beat out of them. If they're coming to school and beating the shit out of me or my friends, that's the problem is those hours that I'm stuck with them at school rather than I don't care really what goes on at home. It's interesting to think that if we were to see those scenes of their home life, right, and it, it, it built sympathy for these people who are acting so terribly when they're at school, then suddenly David, who is, you know, to all intents and purposes, the hero of this movie, he becomes the villain, right? Because you become more sympathetic. But that this, that sympathy isn't what this movie is about. This movie is about that kind of social strata and how and how one person deals with it. Yeah, then we get the funeral scene and the ta- the crying mother and the the dad who is very stoic and all this, and it's just like, oh fuck me. It would become a much more standard, and and again, in some ways, a much more uh, uh, detailed and realistic movie. But realism is not really what this movie is interested in either. It's something that reflects reality, but it doesn't really just uh, it it doesn't try to make these characters entirely realistic. I mean, you have that. The, the 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 character in the library i mean he he he's almost a cartoon right he's he's the intellectual they're really just archetypes that everyone is playing and that's fine because they're very recognizable archetypes yeah oh i i totally forgot but i wanted to mention that i mentioned this very early on in this episode uh there was a version of this out on youtube and i have to tell people to not watch the version on youtube the movie is there in full i couldn't believe what was necessarily going on and i don't know exactly how this effect was achieved and i sent this to heather just so that she could make sure that i wasn't you know like eating mushrooms or something (laughs) at the time but it's like there are moments where – so say there's there's Arthur at the library. This was the scene that really got me. Arthur is kind of moving his head around and talking. He's very uh, uh, excited about this whole possibility of you know this power vacuum at the school and everything. Somehow there's an effect on the video to keep him – centered in the screen while the rest of the screen kind of moves around him. It's almost like that, that Star Trek effect where they will, you know, keep the camera, uh, they'll, they'll readjust those, those scenes of everyone flailing around on, on the, uh, the, the, the deck and everything and uh, show just that it's the actors moving around. It's just this kind of strange thing where every person, like there's even when they're walking, it's like the people are, are, being straight up and down while the world moves around them it is really freaking trippy but it will like i said at the beginning it'll it'll kind of melt your brain it is just absolutely bizarre to see this kind of stuff and it is not the way that the movie was intended like if it was you know like gasper no way would like to do an effect like this in his next film it was that weird yeah this is meant to be seen as sexy jeans no. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I'm. I'm usually not so strident about things. Actually, that's a lie. I kind of am sometimes. But the sexy jeans cut. No. <laughs> Just, but yeah, I would also agree with Mike. Nobody. 
nobody if you you know want to see the film go to Amazon Prime or hopefully let's all knock on wood maybe we'll see we'll hopefully see a release of the film that's proper sooner than later but no that effect is straight up it's like that Pokemon episode that was banned and the 90s yeah. kids little kids were having seizures it is like that bad it is totally seizure inducing it's bizarre <laughs> like I don't want to judge your audience for this podcast, but I guarantee that every single one of them went to YouTube as soon as you started bringing it up just to see how crazy it actually looks. If you're going to do that, go to about 50 minutes into the movie and watch around there. That's the moment with Arthur, I think, that I was talking about. So, yeah, it'll mess you up. So just turn it off as soon as you can and and track down a real release of it. Please, yeah, because I think we've lost a few socially responsible points with this episode. But you know that what's makes life it makes life interesting sometimes. We gotta be a little socially irresponsible here on the show. <laughs> well, I might cut out all the Columbine jokes. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> Jesus. It was dark. But that song is terrible. Like it's it's one of those things where I'm like, damn, Mike, but then I'm like, yeah, that song is legit horrible. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's film. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. I don't want to die. There's someone inside me. She says I must die. Scotty, don't let me go. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. Ah, well, this is a cinch. Yeah, I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. I let you change me. Will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. All right, then I'll do it. They don't care anymore about me.
That's right. We will be back next week with a discussion of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Well, we'll be joined by Professors Susan White and Tanya Modleski. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Heather and Doug. Heather, what have you been up to lately? Well, I am currently working on part two of my post-punk music piece. That's a part of Diabolique's current American Gothic series. Um, with the first part, I covered uh, the cramps and the gun club. And with the second part, I'm going to be looking into the works of Wall of Voodoo and Christian Death. And, um, and you can read all that over at DiaboliqueMagazine.com. And also, my article on the documentary about the legendary punk band The Damned uh, is up and live at my site, MondoHeather.com. How about you, Doug? What have you been up to? Oh, I'm all over the place. Uh, I actually recently uh, finished up a stint over at DailyGrindhouse.com. But if you want to find out some of my writing, if you want to read it, it's uh, a lot of it is over there. I recently put up a uh, review of The Mind's Eye. Um, you, of course, can find my other podcasts. You can find No Budget Nightmares over at NoBudgetPodcast.com. We focus on micro-budget and low-budget cinema. And you can also find Eric Roberts is the fucking man over at EricRobertsIsTheMan.com. But uh, if you really want to follow what I'm up to, check me out on Twitter. It's at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Cool. I will be sure to link to all of that good stuff over at projection-booth.com. Folks who go over there can also check out the uh, link to our iTunes where you can leave a uh, rating and review because every single rating that we get will help us take over the world. You're at the crossroads of your life. Crossroads of your life, a runner chasing dreams that could come true. Like the pebbles on a beach, well within your reach, each tomorrow brings you something new. And the waves ebb and flow, always another chance to let love. Another no, another yes, another just move to me. You're at the crossroads of your life, crossroads of your life, and where you go from here is up to you. There's no one bright flashing light, blinking wrong from right. You alone decide what you must do And the hills never end Always another choice around the bend Another friend Another war Another door to walk through
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.